0: Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome back onto the show Green Beret and best selling author Jason Casper. Now, Jason was my guest on episode 86, which was basically five years ago. So we discuss a host of topics from his perspective on the pandemic, the Afghan withdrawal, his very powerful mental health story, the incredible success he's found with psychedelics, the healing power of kindness and compassion, his latest books, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible second conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So, with that being said, I welcome back Jason Casper. Enjoy. Oh, well, Jason, I want to say firstly. Thank you so, so much. We'll get into it, but for your mentorship after our last conversation in the writing process, it was absolutely invaluable to me. So I don't want to make it about me, but I want to start with thanking you and we'll get to that in a little bit. But secondly, we spoke almost exactly five years ago now, which is only like 18 months into the 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 genesis of this podcast so i know there's a lot happened on my end but a lot's happened on your end so firstly i just want to start by welcoming you back onto the podcast
1: yeah thanks for having me i'm glad the uh writing pointers helped but you know it was really my pleasure because it's it's really rare i get to meet somebody who's um you know just as passionate as i am about healing from trauma and even more rare that that person is a fellow white author who married an Asian optometrist. So we have a lot in common.
0: We are a unique breed. <laughs> so, well, very, very first question then. For I kind of want to do just a, a recap, but not drag you through the whole thing. So firstly, where are we finding you geographically today?
1: Cary, uh, North Carolina. It's uh, the national capital of soy milk, I think. Pretty, pretty yuppie town. Uh, the police drive Teslas. I'm surrounded by hybrid vehicles in all directions.
0: Is there an inner turmoil based on the fact that you were from Wisconsin with the dairy industry and now you're dealing with the soy industry?
1: You know, I, I got over it pretty quick. I think that's when I really realized I had converted to like full-time suburban dad as my wife asked me to get the milk out of the fridge and I was like, almond or soy? Oh. At that point, you know, I just have to turn in any links I have to the dairy industry or growing up, uh, you know, on a farm in Wisconsin. When I was six years old, I had incredible like, cold tolerance dad would send us out to go chop wood in the snow and then I moved to Kentucky when I was 10 lost all of it six months later and never got it back so quite happy to be down here where it's warm
0: yeah absolutely that's funny because if I open my fridge now my son drinks soy milk because he's always had a dairy allergy and then uh, I went from dairy to almond and then ultimately oat and I gotta say the moment I went plant-based and non-dairy the IBS that I'd suffered with for ooh 40 plus years that no medical professional could figure out immediately stopped so thanks medical industry for that uh (laughs) that support
1: yeah it's funny i actually went uh plant-based too and um i haven't noticed any real medical benefits although i do tend to be you know slightly less of an asshole which is a plus
0: (laughs) so you have had quite an awakening the last few years um i want to revisit not anything specific, but when I listened to our first conversation, which for everyone listening was episode 86 we did back in April 2018, um, you talked about not being haunted by triggering memories, that you were definitely having issues with the sleep and then the hypervigilance as well. Um, then you kind of moved forward. We discussed about the the Woodford Woodford's Reserve when you were writing, and a lot of times you'd obviously post the bottle when we'd know that you were writing something else. When you look back again, before we get into the tools that you have found, you know, more recently, since that conversation, so five-ish years ago, you had a certain perception through your eyeballs back then. With this five-year-plus maturity that you have now, what was Jason Casper in 2018 missing?
1: Man, I I think Jason Casper from 2018 when we last talked up until... um, really 2020 plus, um, I wasn't really doing any work to, uh, kind of heal myself. I think I was getting a lot of self-therapy through writing. It's always been very cathartic for me, very therapeutic, um, which probably kept, you know, keep my head on straight. Um, but you know, I was, I was basically greasing the rails with alcohol at all times and it, you know, it never got to the point of being a problem. I was a very high functional drinker, um, I will say without a doubt, it helped kind of supercharge my creative, uh, career. So, but, you know, I think the alcohol was just such a buffer, you know, if anything ever got sufficiently uncomfortable, or I'm getting too stressed, too hypervigilant, uh, too sleep deprived, I could always push the easy button of alcohol and, um, get by just fine. And then I, I kind of hit a point, um, first really big awakening to try to fix myself was when, um, I did clinical ketamine back in January, 2020, just happened to run into a doctor. And, um, you know, he noticed I had a bruise on my neck from the stellate ganglion blocks which one of many uh, PTSD treatments I tried with varying degrees of success, usually temporary. And he was like, oh, you got to go down. You know, my buddy works at this clinic, go do uh, ketamine. So I went down there, did five days of treatments. um, And that was kind of my big awakening that, like there's something better beyond just drinking all the time. Um, So that kind of got me by, but I was still, I had to go back every three to four months to get it. And if I went five months or more, you know, walls would start closing in and I had to run back to a treatment. Um, And then kind of late last year, uh, so late 2022, um, I kind of decided to try psilocybin, um, which is for anybody who's unfamiliar, it's probably not too many at this point because there've been a lot of strides made at Johns Hopkins and everything, um, using it to treat treatment resistant, uh, PTSD, depression, OCD, pick your cliche. Um, so, uh, I decided to just to try that and I started doing some low doses just to test my tolerance. Um, and keep in mind, I did have a lot of experience kind of tripping my balls off in a supervised setting with ketamine. So I felt comfortable starting low and kind of, um, going up in dosage over a period of time um, until I was doing basically macro doses where you know you go under for four or five hours and uh, and see God now once I started doing that um, I didn't really need ketamine anymore and it was a more permanent long-lasting effect um, but one of the things that came out of that through somebody I met in the psilocybin community so to speak was um, they recommended ayahuasca and um, in particular illegal, place down in uh, Florida to go do it. Uh, so I signed up for the retreat and I was getting ready to go in January of this year, 2023. And you, <laughs> in between that, I tried microdosing LSD. So microdose is one tenth to one twentieth of a psychedelic dose. So it's a tiny, tiny amount. You generally take it every three days and do that for a month as a cycle. So 10 doses over 30 days. Um, and my drinking dropped 95% with no willpower, no effort on my part whatsoever. Um, And the government says it's addictive and illegal and you jump off rooftops, which means it's probably awesome. But that was my experience, like drinking dropped to almost nothing. I just had no interest in doing it. I'd occasionally have a few drinks on the weekends, Um, but when I was getting to go do the ayahuasca retreat, um, you have to get off alcohol two weeks before and two weeks after as part of how the the medicine works. so I was kind of looking at my calendar, going through this process. There's a few other foods you have to cut out. And I was like, OK, because I could start drinking again here. And I just kind of stopped. And I was like, I'm done. Like, I can't get anything else from alcohol. Um, and kind of in the meantime, my writing experience progressed to the point where instead of it being an enabler and kind of helping me punch outside my pay grade in terms of prose and creativity and constructing story events, I just kind of outpaced it to where I had enough experience after, you know, 18 books where, you um, it was more, it was holding me back more than it was helping push me forward. So I just did, I was like, okay, I'm I'm going to quit. I did one last day, went to my favorite hole in the wall bar, did one last writing shift there with a few IPAs, came back, and I had like a drink of like my six top favorite bourbons, and then put it away, haven't touched it since. Like I've got a hundred bottles of bourbon at the house that, um, you know, my friends are thrilled that I've quit drinking because it, it all belongs to them at this point. But yeah, since then, I've had just no desire to drink, no reaching for a bottle, no emotional dependence on it whatsoever, which I think is a, a testament to um, psychedelic medicine more than any willpower or restraint on my part because I certainly had none before.
0: So I want to kind of unpack each of those modalities because I've had guests on for, talking about literally all of them, including the ganglion block. Before we do, though... You and I are sitting down five years ago. We're talking about this. We're also talking about, um, you know, the, the social element of drinking. So neither of us kind of found ourselves binge drinking because we had that introduction through, you know, my English life, your kind of farm life, where it wasn't stigmatized either. So you weren't held back. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're doing beer bongs and beer pongs and everything else right. that rhymes with Ong. Um, and so, you know, it, it never became like a, a way to escape for me. However... And we're hearing it more now—the Human Podcast and some other ones that are coming out—that there basically is no real upside to alcohol. We're trying to justify it a lot of times. And by the way, I'm drinking ginger beer. You see me swigging from a bottle. Um, no judgment. <laughs> no judgment on me. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so so we're we're doing the kind of social norm. But my realization is that I try and write in the morning now. So if I drink the night before, it totally fucks up my my mind you know i'm foggy i can't think i'm not very creative so that was the trade-off for me when you look back now and you're using this you got this hypervigilance, is allowing you creativity through all these experiences that you've been through what was some of the as they call it, the thing beneath the thing what were some of the things in the back of your mind that were actually causing these these hypervigilant states that you were using alcohol to try and damper
1: uh, so I think at the core of it, you know, it's it's easy for me to point to post-traumatic stress. Um, you know, I certainly have a, a well-earned diagnosis, I think, do most uh, members of the military have served in combat. And I can't even begin to speculate what percentage of police and first responders have been involved um, in life and death situations, just exposure to trauma. So that's the that's the quickest thing to point to. I will note, however, um, that to date when I've almost every time without exception that I've done high dose psychedelics, um, from ketamine, psilocybin, ayahuasca, um, like combat in my time at war has not even been on the table. And, you know, ayahuasca in particular just took me back to childhood. Um, so since, since then I started, I came back from ayahuasca and I also just started doing psychotherapy. Like one of the guys I met down there told me his, um, therapist was amazing. Um, And I started working with that guy who specializes in vets so I can spit out a few, um, you know, facts from him um, without charging you what I what I pay for it. Um, So he basically said a dark secret of. Psychiatry is that they had to bifurcate um, alcoholism from functional alcoholism, largely because of the post 9-11 generation of vets. Um, Whereas alcoholism is what you'd normally think of somebody needing alcohol to live their life. Functional alcoholism um, was largely like veterans. And I would assume the, the same applies to a lot of the first responders and police who are in that same kind of category of exposure to trauma. But they're using it to solve a problem. Right. They're not as functional due to the PTSD or the trauma, whatever they have going on. And um, alcohol helps them be more functional, but they're not in any way like limited by using it, so to speak. Um, But I think for me, it was kind of buffering me from like doing the actual work of trying to like dig down, get my shit together. Um, And, you know, the other thing my my therapist said, um, although I hate using that line, but it's true. Um, he said that a lot of the problem that vets have is they go in, and this is certainly my experience when I went in for EMDR, CPT, SGV, all these different treatments um, that kind of, for me, treated the symptoms temporarily, if not making things worse. Um, he said that you go into a provider to get fill-in-the-blank treatment. That provider may not be equipped to handle any of the fallout. So they, you know, you go through EMDR, which I did. And it brings up a lot of, um, you know, horrible shit and trauma to the surface. And then there's no bucket to catch it in because there's, you know, that person's not a trained, you know, psychotherapist or anything. So all this kind of emerges, the vet gets angrier. And then in the meantime, the person administering that treatment, who may or may not be qualified to use these tools that bypass the mind's defense mechanisms, is telling the vet or the patient, like, stop drinking, you need to stop drinking, but they're not fixing the problem. Um, and in his experience, again, specializing in vets is that they're using it to fix a problem. And I think that was certainly the case for me. And the root of the problem is either PTSD, the standard things from growing up, you know, everything Freud and young, um, detail or some combination of the two.
0: So I was listening to this conversation five years ago now, um, and, Was, you know, analyzing my questions and the way I was thinking and all the things that I missed. But this is, you know, five more years worth of conversations like this that I've got now. The childhood trauma element and trauma can be, you know, a a wide spectrum, but still traumatic to the child from sexual abuse to being a middle child and feeling unloved and everything in between. But so many of us in uniform, as I have learned 800 episodes later, so many of us have some sort of significant trauma that definitely shaped us, I would argue probably sent us into a uniform for a number of reasons to, to, for the, the kind of the cycle to stop, to become the protector, to stay busy and be able to bury things down. Um, You touched on childhood just for a second. When you look back, were there any elements of your upbringing that you would consider now contributed to some of your struggles?
1: Yes, I think so. Um, to be perfectly clear, I don't I don't know what they are yet. So I I definitely got from ayahuasca. Everything I saw was, you know, and it generally exposes your your blind spots, what you need to work on, what needs to be healed. Um, and for me, it was straight back to childhood. I saw everything in um, kind of Jungian psychology terms of you know um, shadow self, repressed inner child so I kind of saw all of that and I came out of it knowing like I needed to do therapy. Um, I've since started therapy and so I didn't have any incidents in childhood whatsoever that I remember of anything that would be, um, state or government definition of trauma in the sense that, you know, a child would be like put in protective custody, removed from the parents. Um, I have nothing in my past that, qualifies as like trauma with a capital T um, unless there's something I've repressed that I'm completely unaware of right now but I know from uh, talking to my therapist he basically said like the stuff I had in childhood which was a very happy functioning childhood he said a lot of that constitutes trauma not in the state definition but in the clinical definition Um, so I know everybody's very quick to to point to, well, I didn't have it as bad as X, Y, Z, or, you know, this never happened to me, but it's been explained to me you know, in no uncertain terms that in terms of the traumatic factor, it plays into, you know, your psyche in childhood and then repeating those patterns growing up. It, it doesn't have to be sexual abuse, physical abuse, or anything else. It can just be part of growing up that's traumatic to a, a childhood psyche that uh, creates patterns that um, manifest and ripple effects later in life.
0: Well, it seems like it's when it challenges the hierarchy of needs. So, you know, you can feel, um, like you're not stable. You're not protected. You're not safe in a number of ways. You can feel like you're not loved in a number of ways. One of my guests, Ishmael Bey, was a, um, a boy soldier in Sierra Leone. And on these, these children are forced. They don't have a choice. You either fight or you're executed. So that's it. And his parents were all killed um so i mean that's about the as far on that one side along with sexual abuse that you think of as trauma to a child i've had guests that were fostered adopted or even a middle child as i touched on a minute ago that the parent wanted a boy and they had a boy then they wanted a girl and they had another boy then they had a girl well my friend was that middle boy and in that particular family dynamic whatever it actually looked like from the outside looking in, he felt extremely unloved, almost disliked by his parents. So, you know, you have all these spectrums, and if he looks at Ishmael, he goes, well, you know, what have I got to complain about? But as you said, it doesn't matter. Trauma is trauma, and it's not a comparison game.
1: Yeah, that's the that's the lesson that's come up for me. In professional therapy, with the ayahuasca facilitators, um, with integration specialists I've talked to that are just in the psychedelic community, um, basically, everybody says like, stop comparing, stop trying to like figure out exactly what's wrong with you, and like just start doing the work of um, kind of unpacking whatever it is that's holding you back, regardless of anybody else's definition.
0: So you talked about EMDR bringing up some of the emotions that they weren't able to deal with, and this, that's something I've heard with people with meditation and mental health. You know, if if you meditate and you've got this <laughs> this bucket that's brimming over it may calm the bucket down. The bucket may start to empty or it may explode all over your face and now you're dealt with, you know, you're trying to deal with these other things. So this is what's so important with the toolbox. Everything that you've mentioned, I've had people on here that it's worked for. The ganglion block blockers work for some of my friends. EMDR, you know, uh, talk therapy, all these things. But I've also got stories of people where it didn't have any, you know, make any difference whatsoever or, as you touched on, made it worse. So, with your personal journey, it's not demonizing the modalities. What were some of the ones that seemed ineffective or temporary or even made it worse apart from obviously the EMDR thing that you touched on?
1: So, yeah, and I'll, I'll be the first to say is I've, I've said this before. Like, I don't, I don't think there's any one size fits all solution. If there was, we wouldn't be having this conversation, right? It, it'll all be fixed. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to the individual for me personally. Um, EMDR um, dragged up a lot of issues, um, made me extremely angry. And I basically gutted it through, you know, 12 sessions to quote unquote, give it a chance um, and got like worse during that time. I was just furious, angry all the time. Um, So that didn't work for me. That's not to say it wouldn't have in the hands of a better practitioner. um, That might have had, I don't know, more experience, maybe a better patient than I was. Um, cognitive processing therapy, where you kind of like write down and detail these things and what you're feeling, um, also didn't work for me. And I just the therapist frustrated. I was frustrated because you know she was like, "Oh, and and don't drink. Like, don't drink." Um, so I had like, "Cool, don't drink." or write about. And I'd have things like, "Cool, it's three in the morning. I'm perfectly sober. I'm gonna be non-functional tomorrow, but you know, I'm sober. I'm not drinking." So it was actually like worse for me than drinking to get five, six hours of sleep, bad sleep and sleep nonetheless. And then being functional with my kids the next day, um, stellate ganglion block did work for me, but it was temporary. It kind of diffused all of that, um, hypervigilance, that constant muscle tension, that constant like expecting something catastrophic to happen in the possible second, um, when you're living in, you know, suburbia next to a Trader Joe's, um, but uh, And then the you know the symptoms would come back. You have to go and get another shot in and, and to be clear, like SGB is not like a casual saunter in and get a needle in the arm. Like they're using an x-ray to put a needle into your neck while you hold perfectly still so they can inject this you know medication into a nerve bundle. Um, so it was just too temporary, too transient. Ketamine, I think, was certainly a step up. I could get once I did the five days, and every different practitioners have different protocols, um, so it'll vary clinic to clinic based on what they've seen work. Um, but I did five days of high doses, uh, right? So about an hour each, each of the five days, um, just to kind of reset a baseline. And then after that, it'd be about every three to four months is what it came down to for me, where it would last me that long. I'd be the most functional I'd ever been. And then I would have to kind of go back and get another one.
0: Now, was that, sorry to interrupt that, was that ketamine with the counseling? So you weren't just having an infusion, you having someone talk to you through the experience or was it simply an infusion?
1: It was simply the infusion, and it's pretty shocking that that worked for me, and that it works for people. Um, because to be clear, all these studies that are going on, Johns Hopkins, um, all these centers that are doing the MDMA studies of PTSD, that are having these incredible success rates, like curing seventy percent of PTSD in like three high dose sessions, where you know a year later the person is not diagnosable as having that, you know, that um, symptom whatsoever um, They're all psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, so they're, it's not just the psychedelic. It's doing this talk therapy, unpacking everything before and after, integrating, um, you know, whatever you get during your psychedelic journey. So I didn't have any of that, and in fact, there was no coaching on even just basic psychedelic trip shit, like preparation, navigation, integration. None of that. It's like sit down in the chair, take a needle. Like, oh, it might help to have an intention of some kind. Good luck, you know. And then they. <laughs> walk out of the room. So I kind of navigated that stuff on my own and kind of got used to that state. And the one thing I learned, which does apply, I think, for any psychedelics, is like you just have to surrender. The only time I've ever gotten to trouble on a trip was early on in those first five days of ketamine where I started seeing a bunch of horrific war imagery and stuff, um, and I started resisting it, right? That inner contraction, I don't want to be seeing this. Try to pull your mind out and take your thoughts somewhere else. And, uh, you know, the psychedelics will not have that shit. Um, so it's, it becomes like physically punishing, like difficulty breathing. And that's what goes into like a bad trip experience. Um, and I thought I was ODing and the nurse came in and it was a two shot procedure. So I'd had my first shot. It started going like really downhill when I was coming up for my second and she came in and I was like, can you check the dose? Like, I think I'm ODing. I think you got the dose wrong. And she said, and I'm sure she's seen this before. She's like, the medicine, it's working through something. Like, do you want the second shot? So I was like, yes. And she gave me the second shot in the instant I, like, surrendered to it. And I was like, okay, whatever you're going to show me, you're going to show me. Um, All the physical symptoms lifted. And then I got all these crazy revelations that it was trying to break me through to, if not for my own resistance. So since then, any type of psychedelic, um, in my experience, it's all about surrendering to the experience. Don't resist anything. Um, and kind of going with an intention, but let it, let the journey take you where it takes you. So it was pretty remarkable that I had great success. Like that ketamine is that good in that context for whatever I had going on that I was getting three to four months of relief off just the medicine. And it probably would have been infinitely more effective with, uh, therapy occurring in conjunction.
0: Well, that's what I've heard, you know, whether it's MDMA-led counseling, it's the ketamine, it's the psychedelics. You know, if you are recreationally taking psychedelics, which I wonder how many Vietnam vets that actually helped when they came back to the hippie culture, that'd be an interesting statistic to study. But having that, that, you know, whatever, shaman, counselor, whatever it is, guiding you through, because if you're talking about the ganglion block or some of these other things, that's the princess and the P you haven't addressed the P you know what I mean? You've, you've maybe removed a mattress or added a mattress, but right. with the psychedelic journey, to use another analogy, it would be like opening the cupboard and you walk into Narnia and I don't come in with you and you come out going fucking hell man. And, and you're clueless because you stayed in the bedroom. You know what I mean? So I think you have to marry those two. You're trying to get to the nucleus of what the problem is. If you just send someone down that journey and, they don't have that person holding their hand metaphorically to guide them through okay i saw this this and this to write down what they saw tell me about this you know is this a good feeling is this a bad feeling and i have no idea what they would do but i'm assuming it would be trying to get you to solve some of the puzzles while you're in this state so that when you come out now you're more aware now you've unlocked some some boxes in your mind and you're a couple of rungs on the ladder closer to getting to that origin
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, And I haven't done any high dose psychedelics since starting therapy. I started right when I came back from um, that ayahuasca retreat. But from everything I've learned and, you know, that I've experienced in therapy, which it's not easy. um, You know, there's emotional outbursts and, um, you know, things coming to the surface, like randomly I'll have you know, very strong, almost psychedelic great emotions associated with like a childhood memory that I haven't thought about in years. Um, and that comes out is it, a part of the therapy process, which is normal. But, you know, lately I've been, I've got an alarm set for, you know, 4.15 in the morning and I don't even make it that far because I wake up at two or three in the morning in a cold sweat and I have some crazy dream that I write down and then the therapist like dissects it. And it, according to him, gives him a roadmap uh, for, you know, what are the issues we need to go down and touch into, um, later in therapy. And it's coming like directly from your subconscious, directly from things that you either wouldn't give a voice to or don't even consider because it's been repressed, um, in your mind for so long. So like right now, um, I would say I'm, I'm doing worse physically throughout the day, like energy levels, um, emotional stability than I was eight months ago, but it's because I'm, I'm like actually doing the work and going through that process, which is not an easy process um, rather than just buffering myself with alcohol, which I know I could have continued doing for the rest of my life. um, And I kind of made a decision to step away from it and try to actually get my shit together. um, So it's not been easy. And one of the things my, you know, that my therapist also said, he's like, basically with all the, all the extreme trauma stuff um, he's like, particularly with regard to PTSD, he's like, most civilians don't understand. It's not possible to just stay alive and things get better with time. He's like, it's not how it works. So people with, um, you know, strong PTSD, they either have to grind through life with coping mechanisms, alcohol or whatever, or check out of the ride and kill themselves. It's like one of those two. And the only way out he's like, there aren't many good, there aren't many options out at all. And they're all grueling, right? Like I'm doing the therapy and psychedelics route. And he's like, it's grueling, it's hard work, but he's like, there will be reprieves throughout the process. And eventually you'll, you reach a place where you start healing kind of the core wounds that are, you know, to use your analogy, like the pee under the mattresses, but getting there takes time. And, uh, a lot of work and effort, and I'm I'm hoping it's worth it. I know that, based on the years I spent since leaving the military, just using alcohol to get by. Um, you know, I, I didn't want to continue doing that for another forty years, so I try it out now. Maybe in five years when we do another podcast, I'll have better answers for you. But that's been my experience so far.
0: No, but I think this is this is what we want to hear because the the modern day American way of thinking is all right. Tell me the thing that worked. Oh, well, I did this, I went to a ceremony, there's this dude, he had a mask on, he was shaking things, there was music, and then I woke up and I was fucking awesome and haven't looked back. The reality is, like you said, decades of life, I mean, trauma, happiness, love, loss, all these things, you're not going to unpack that in a weekend, you know? So, and you said about doing the work, this is what the phrase that I hear from so many people I know are actually doing better, because... It's an unpleasant thing to address all the things that happened, to unpack it, to relive it, to maybe have a revelation that, you know, your parent maybe wasn't who you thought they were, you know, or, or or suddenly discover that something happened to you that, you know, now you've got guilt and shame. I didn't realize that, you know, I was taken advantage of this way, whatever it is. So, yeah, understanding that it is going to be, you know, it's a, a work in progress. You're never really going to have an end point because you're still living too you're still you know having financial issues and relationship problems and family illnesses and so you're trying to heal while life's still kicking you in the face so uh yeah I think this is an important perspective that you're going through at the moment
1: yeah I mean I I agree
0: well another thing when I was listening to our first podcast it's funny because I just kind of did a self experiment and it was exactly what you talked about so we did the 7x um project around the world event uh, in February and I'd say the pinnacle event was we got to skydive over the pyramids um, now when I've done two skydives now in my life the first time it was in New Zealand and I will put my hand on my heart and say I metaphorically and literally shit myself before the skydive <laughs> terrified me before I was a firefighter a girlfriend of mine Zoe um, had kind of booked us in and I was like well I guess I'm not getting out of this So, yeah, McDonald's bathroom before and then, uh, you know, but we jumped out of the plane. It was amazing. But what I hate is that sudden drop. What I didn't realize when you skydive from an airplane is that it's doing 100 and whatever miles an hour. So you kind of drift out. You don't plummet. Beautiful. So go through the fire service, come out the other end, do this podcast. We have these conversations. And I have about a year ago, I have a realization like nothing really gets my heart rate up anymore it's almost like the opposite of hypervigilance um you know everything is kind of dull but not not in a negative way it's just there's no acute event because when you've been through the things that we do in uniform life is pretty tame in comparison so even like you almost get hit by a car or whatever it's like yeah you know i didn't did i um so anyway i, I don't i'm telling myself okay is this a fictional thing that i'm seeing or is it physiological so this was seemingly adrenal fatigue and i heard someone say that's not a real thing well you know it's it's a depletion of the response if nothing else um so we go to 7x and they say hey we got the whole team a skydive over the pyramids and i'm like oh okay brilliant and they go it's out of a helicopter i'm like oh shit i hate drops this is gonna be a test this is something i know i really dislike I'm going to do it because it sounds amazing, but I'm probably going to shit myself again. Mate, Zero, zero adrenaline, adrenaline. Just sat there, leapt out the plane with the dude strapped to my back, and then uh, we landed, and I was just sore. My cheeks were sore from smiling, but it was crazy, and it's what you talked about with your journey into skydiving and then base jumping and then having that realization that you didn't even have the elevated heart rate. Now, the reason for this long monologue prior to this question when you hear stories of heroism, when you hear, um, you know, some of these fearless men and women that we have amongst us, there's of course a courage component. But I now, with what I'm learning and seeing, is is it also a diminished adrenal response, a diminished value for your own life? So just random kind of observation. But what is your perspective of where you found yourself with no elevated heart rate after a base jump? Again through the eyes now 2023.
1: Hey, you know, that's a that's a great observation. Um, I would guess that adrenal fatigue is real. Uh, I'm not a scientist, but you know, your experience and mine is certainly like you need more of whatever it is, like, okay, a skydive's not giving you adrenaline. Now you start base jumping, then a base jump's not giving you adrenaline. Now you start taking it lower, lower free falls of antennas. Um with regard to combat, man, um, I say this at the risk of trying to, you know, make it sound like I'm self-promoting and I'm not trying to, but there were very, very few times that I was ever, like, scared in combat. It's It was generally, like, almost a zen-like focus um, for me personally, um, which is notable because I was frequently, like, scared shitless in, like, training. Like, you're, you know, 19-year-old private with 100 pounds of equipment strapped to you and about to bail out a bird um, or an aircraft to, uh, you know, assemble into a 20-mile road march to a live fire range. It's going to be, like, horrendously, like, a horrendous endurance event. And I I remember many times in training just being like, fuck, 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 um, Combat typically was was very... Zen like focus. I think I certainly had a okay, I'll put it to you like this. After one once I got into like uh special forces, my team sergeant, like, you know, we would frequently this is my second, you know, there's there's a team leader and team sergeant, you kinda they call you work wives Like you are married, you manage everything with the team, like I'm dealing with headquarters, he's dealing with um making it converting all the orders into you know, actionable guidance for the guys. So he, you know, we were having one of our closed door conversations after a mission and he was like, Jason, you don't, you don't give a shit if you get killed, do you? And I was like, no, like, no, not really. He's like, yeah, I saw it here, here and here. He's like, I'm the same way. And we have one other person on our team. who's like that, like, do you know who it is? And I guessed and I was wrong. Took another guess and I was wrong. And then he told me who it was and what action he saw that demonstrated that this guy indeed did not give a, a shit whether he lived or died. um. And, you know, I, I was never in a position to find out what I would have done in some, you know, call of duty, valorous circumstance. But if I did anything positive in that situation, I think for me personally, it would have been just out of like apathy, like no, almost no bravery required. It's kind of like, eh, you know, when you're exposed to enough, Death and warfare. I don't know. I certainly got pretty ambivalent about my own um, survival. And even like having a wife and kid towards the end of my career didn't really factor in because it was so compartmentalized. You know, like when I went on mission, there was zero like thoughts of family, none, none whatsoever. Just total focus like until I came back. So like none of that really played a part. Um, So, yeah, you bring up an excellent point about does it matter to you at that time whether you live or die?
0: Well, I think what makes it even more haunting is, because I had that too in the fire service, when I look back, I'm like, I genuinely wasn't scared on fire. There were, I'll put my hand on my heart. There were a couple of times actually in, in lesser fires where I got disoriented for a moment and was like, oh, shit. And that certainly got me for a second. But overall, going into this burning structure, or going, you know, whatever we're heading into at that point, you know, there's a shooting or whatever. It's just you, you're relying on your training. They do such a good job, and if you're diligent in your craft and you take this profession seriously and you train, you keep your fitness up. I think you you have the. The ability to kind of relax and let your body just do the things that it's rehearsed a thousand times, um, and so I think it, you know, it takes the myopic focus off the skill, and, and you do kind of find yourself more in that flow state. The scary thing, though, that abandonment of self worth—and not deliberate, but you know, that seeming shift towards that—you marry that element with a profession that is already signed on the dotted line. I'm willing to die for a complete stranger and then you add some mental health struggles in there as well and then you look at the definition of suicide not from what we all thought when we were young and naive like oh it's cowardly how could you do that it's selfish but now understanding the mind of someone in crisis they truly believe that they're a burden to the world so you add this kind of lower fear you know uh, this acceptance of death almost the selfless Service that you're willing to die for someone else, and then this lower perceived of, you know, view of yourself, this this self burden element, I think that's a, a super dangerous cocktail that that leads to so many of our people in uniform to take their own lives. Because I believe that my child and my wife are better off without me, even though that's a fucked up way of thinking. Because my brain is all miswired from all the trauma and all the other compounding elements but now i'm going to do the courageous and selfless thing and i'm going to take myself out so my child and my wife will be happier. It's we never hear of it that way in suicide prevention conversations but that's what i've kind of discovered of the real people this is this is what they think this is how they feel. So you marry that selflessness with that feeling of burden and now you've got a deadly combination for self-harm.
1: Yeah, you certainly do and i think the like that line of rhetoric about suicide being Selfish and cowardly. Um it's always pissed me off. Um probably because, you know, I spent a decent amount of years being like actively suicidal. It's very high functioning depressive and that drove all my interest in adrenaline sports and getting back into combat however I could. Um you know, and speaking for myself before I was married, like having dry fired a revolver in my mouth, like Go ahead and try that, like make sure it's unloaded and try it and then come back to me and let me know how like how cowardly you felt when you did that. Like cowardice not, doesn't enter the equation. You know, I think you look at the populations of people that are killing themselves at two to three times the rate of their you know, civilian counterparts. It's our nation's best and brightest and bravest. It's the people who've been screened for. Service as first responders, firefighters, military special operations are leading the charge. I think we're the we're killing ourselves in greater numbers. And these are people who've passed like selection on top of selection, on top of psychological assessment, on top of psychological assessment. Um, And I mean, you I don't know what what your experience is like. Obviously, we all know people. If you're anywhere near any of these communities we're talking about, you know, plenty of people who've killed themselves and in my experience, like it is the best people. It's not like, I don't know. Personally, I've never had like a mediocre guy I've worked with, like ever kill themselves. It's always like the absolute gangster stud who you want, like leading the way into a building. Um, So yeah, that, that line of rhetoric has always kind of upset me, particularly, you know, and you get these, comedians like dane cook is like yeah i tried feeling sad and you know but then i just ate a piece of chocolate and i was happy so if you're suicidal you're a selfish fuck i'm like dude you need to shut the fuck up that would be like me saying maybe i'll get canceled for this that would be like me saying like yeah sure when i see ryan gosling you know i feel something but uh you know i I don't go out and fuck dudes or anything right it's like if you don't have depression like say thank you and move on because i'll tell you um this will sound like I'm bragging, but then hang in there and I'll take it real dark. You know, I've done some things that would be considered like difficult, certainly. Okay. Marathons, 50 milers, 100 mile races, you know, ranger regiment selection, ranger school, special forces selection, combat, fill in the blank. The hardest thing I've ever done is depression. Like, there's not even a close second. Nothing I've ever experienced or heard of comes even a close second to the experience of like, true depression. Um, so the people that suffer under that have my utmost compassion and empathy because I've gotten a window into how hard it was. And, you know, if I hadn't been pulled out of it through, you know, seemingly miraculous interventions, meeting my wife and the right things happening at the right time to kind of prolong my existence before I, um, you know, and I, frankly, if I had the balls to kill myself, it would have happened years ago. When I was at my worst, and I think I can say it about myself, like I, and I don't mean any disrespect to families, sui- people who took their lives by suicide. Honest to God, like you and me talking here, like I don't have the balls to kill myself. But I think I would have gotten dumber and dumber doing stuff, base jumping, to where you know my sport did me in for me, because I didn't have like the physical and literal courage um, to do it myself. So, yeah, look at the populations that are killing themselves. Um, La Coura Nation glorifies with, you know, we glorify the military. We glorify police, firefighters, first responders, the people that keep us safe and let, you know, peaceful men sleep in their bed at night because of these pipe hitters that are out there on the front lines. Um, And you can't go from that and turn around when those people are killing themselves in meteoric numbers due to you know, a lack of better options that should be ideally available and ideally available while they're in the profession of service. Um, you can't turn around and start vilifying those communities as cowardly. And I think anybody who does just has no idea what they're talking about.
0: Yeah. Well, firstly, Dane Cook is one of my wife's favorite comedians and i fucking hate it <laughs> so, no 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 like i just I'm, you know I'm, he may be an amazing human being who knows but as far as comedy i love comedy that's definitely not someone that i and again i get that comedians venture into places i mean you know the south park series and um oh god what the hell daniel tosh daniel tosh i mean he'll go to some you know super triggering places and i do understand that but as a comedian not a fan gotta say anyway moving on <laughs> um Glad we got that out of the yeah way. there we go see obviously now now i'm healing see that um but the other thing i think that is so sad is you know we talk about the mental health element in the first responder and military community and we go oh it's what jason saw in afghanistan in iraq oh it's what james saw you know and i've saw, seen some horrible shit and you have seen and done some horrible shit that's the one thing about firefighting versus say, law enforcement is that we don't have to take a life if we're doing that then obviously we push the wrong drugs and we probably end up in handcuffs but um but it's the compounding elements it's the same with this school violence conversation well let's just divide everyone and argue about guns for two days and then fuck it we'll just go to the super bowl and everything will be fine you know we're not fixing anything focusing on that one area but you educate someone who is a high performer in uniform and you start telling them about like we discussed the massive impact childhood trauma has on your foundation, your ability to cope with things later in your career, the effects of sleep deprivation, the side effects of psychiatric meds, organizational stress and bullying. I mean, there's this massive list of things that all create this perfect storm. Then you throw in the, um, the transition out, for example. How many of our men and women take their own lives when they've left the military or the fire service? Um, you know, So that loss of tribe. So th- when you put all these pieces together... Now you've educated someone on all these red flags that are happening. And if you look at your life and you're a firefighter and you're going through COVID, so you're getting mandatory all the time, you've done 72 hours without sleep and your relationship's crumbling and you take in a bunch of meds, you know, these are all things that are going to push you, and an alcohol is a perfect one, push you towards that point where that invisible hand that's saying, hey, you're a human being, we're designed to thrive and reproduce and protect our children, that that hand is stopping you from doing anything to yourself. But with all those compounding elements, that hand now is behind you pushing you into that because that's how miswired you are. So until we have this multifaceted conversation, the same with the school shootings, they're all these same elements, they either create suicide or homicide, we're not going to fix this. We're not going to fix this with say, hey, bro, if you're struggling, call me or here's a number, I'll pin it to the fucking, you know, the HR front door. We have to actually understand the holistic elements that contribute to someone who was a fearless warrior, ultimately, you know, surviving all these things where enemies are trying to kill them and they end up dying by their own hand, which is the ultimate tragedy.
1: Yeah, dying by their own hand in far greater numbers than the enemy or any fires or, you know, police shootings can account for far greater numbers. Um Yeah, so certainly a complex issue. And one thing I'll throw at you um, that, you know, my therapist put to me, and it says he's kind of a subject matter expert, specializes in vets. He's very, very good at what he does. Um, He said that all of the effects of PTSD, like the very nature of PTSD down to how it manifests and all the symptoms changes largely based off the... Conflict that caused it. So, from a military perspective, he said, What you have is PTSD is very different than what a World War II that would have had from PTSD. Um, he's like, PTSD shifted from like 1945 to 1995. It looks very different for the 9 11 generation of war veterans. Um, and he's like, In large part, the PTSD gets worse when the logic system and the reasoning you have behind making sense of everything you had to do and see crumbles. Um, so speaking from the military side, right, if you were in World War, you're a World War II vet um, and you were not on the Axis side, like, you were part of the most just war that we will probably ever see in our lifetime or that our children will see in their lifetime, right? There's a There are countries trying to take over the world to enslave and kill as many people as they can, right? Pretty clear cut. But as time marches forward the reasons for war become increasingly convoluted. And we have, you know, memos from the White House at three in the afternoon on 9-11 saying, how do we link this to Iraq to use it as a reason to invade, right? You have 9-11, like a lot of people think it was the conspiracy because it looks so from a geopolitical standpoint, but it was actually like a preloaded agenda that that was, that was an event that happened that they could use to push the media to bang the war drums wave the WMD flag, get us into whatever countries, um, you know, they want it as part of a geopolitical agenda. So as war goes on, it, it the reasons for it become more capitalistic, more like growth of the military-industrial complex, more geopolitically motivated, and then you end up with, you know, again, in the military capacity, you have a generation of people who are watching the fall of Afghanistan, go back to the Taliban, erasing, you know, for the Taliban, they waited for 20 years they knew we would leave and they inherited by most estimates somewhere to the tune of 800 million dollars worth of military equipment pretty good pretty good deal now most of that equipment a lot of it is going to be paperweights because they don't have a logistical chain to service it you know um, unless another country steps in which is entirely possible to help them with it but you know if you're looking at that from the perspective of somebody whose rationale was I was defending my country post 9-11, making the world a better place, stopping future 9-11s. And then you watch all that crumble. Um, my therapist said that that creates like a true like when you start, if you unravel the reasons and the justifications and it won't no longer makes sense to you, it causes like a true psychic crisis because the foundation of your entire morality and ethics structure And self with a capital S is invested in this warrior protector mentality. And when that rug gets pulled out, it puts you in such a dark place that getting out of it takes a monumental effort. And I think that's certainly what we're seeing on the military veteran side to a large extent. Um, And it's probably emblematic of all the myriad factors that are reasons in modern society for an average civilian. To feel disconnected, isolated, depressed, swept up in the 12-hour news cycle of shit and horror that's, you know, doom scrolling, um, much less, you know, the police, firefighters, first responders in the middle who are undergoing all the trauma that is similar to the military, not killing people ideally, but just the same. And then in the military, we have the advantage of like, we go to war and then we come home. You know, whereas you're a first responder, or you're a cop, like you are living in the area where all these traumatic events occurred and you have daily reminders. You don't need a trigger of it's just this warm out on this day and the breeze hits you from a certain way and the sun's setting and you think you're going back out on mission, but you don't you don't consciously think it. But all your hypervigilance swells up like the people who work in America and accumulate that trauma here, like they're exposed to that every hour of every day which i would imagine would be infinitely harder but again i don't want to get into the these people have it worse than these other people like we've we've all got issues we're all i think all the before their first responder military civilian issues they are human issues and that's that's at the center of it all
0: so when we spoke last we were still in afghanistan now obviously there's been the withdrawal and i've had it's been it's been amazing i've had a lot of people from all branches that have talked about, I mean, their whole life story, but also their perspective on that. I've had Afghani and um, Iraqi commandos and interpreters that have come on that were, you know, I wouldn't say rescues the wrong word, but, but immigrated to the U S after their service. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to get into that, but also even when you talked about the preloaded thing, that's what I saw as a civilian. We were, or you, we now, when I moved to this country were attacked by a Saudi based in Afghanistan. And our knee jerk was, we're going to Iraq. Now, I'm not a geography major, but I'm pretty sure those are two different countries. So it wasn't the fact that, hey, we want to go back to Iraq and finish this thing that my dad didn't do properly. What pissed me off is it was literally packaged in a way like, this is a response to the war on terror. So To me, I had the same perspective as you at the beginning. That makes perfect sense. Like whatever the next thing is, this is what we're going to do with it because it was clear, you know. Then you, you fast forward twenty years in Afghanistan, and now I think it's that organizational betrayal. It's that moral injury of like you told us this was going to do a thing. You told us this was going to get you know make the world better. Twenty of my friends are dead because of that conflict, and now we're just leaving. So through your eyes seeing as it's been five years talk to me about you know yourself as a veteran who's who's served in both countries that we you know, withdrew from on that impact on you and or some of the crazy uh, some of the incredible men and women that you served alongside
1: man so i i was hoping i could just unplug during the withdrawal and i was like when it started happening um and everything started going to shit in august uh 2021 i remember thinking like all right i'm gonna follow the news until the last american is out of afghanistan and then i'm gonna unplug from it because to do otherwise would just be too fucking painful um that was my naive response and then i got an sos from an interpreter i used to work with who dragged his feet on the special immigrant visa and then he's in kabul with his you know his wife um and his three kids, one of which was, you know, a one-year-old. And he needed help. So I got roped into the, like, you read those news reports of, like, oh, there's all these veterans that are living in their office, and they're not sleeping for days at a time trying to figure out, like, checkpoints and getting people to the airport, and what's the process for getting these people out of the country. Um, Like, that was very real, and I got roped up in that, and I lived in my office for two weeks. That was, you know, spent 50 hours awake at one point, um, trying to do damage control on this is, you know, all these veterans are trying to help these Afghanis who are, you know, still there. Um, and I, at the time, um, it was it was horrific because the things that we had to do, trying to help these people that ideally would have been done by, I don't know, the government that fucking started it or, you know, somebody who's still working for the government, um, which is a dangerous line of thinking, because that's, you know, when I was 18 year old private, I was like, yeah, OK, we're going to Afghanistan. Great. We're going to Iraq. Great. Like I just assumed that, you know, there were adults in the White House that knew what they were doing and had, you know, the best interest of everybody at heart. Now looking back, I'm like, okay, I was I was a dumbass. So yeah, I could have read a Wikipedia page in Afghanistan and reasonably concluded that trying to occupy and convert them into 21st century is not going to end well um, because the historical precedent is pretty predictable. Um, so it was that was incredibly like emotionally damaging going through that process. I remember. You know, you you have five different chat windows up with these different encrypted apps and you're cross-loading information from other groups of veterans and whatnot, on where the Taliban's at, how to get around the checkpoints. And, um, you know, I just remember seeing like snippets of conversation like, my God, what have we done? And these are from people who are out of the military. Um, they're not responsible for this, but there's that human connection with the people you worked with. And like one of the most emotionally gutting things that's ever happened to me in my life is I was... I was helping, I was going to have my interpreter make a run for the airport. We'd mapped out, you know, where the checkpoints were, had an app on his phone so he could navigate around them. Um, And I was like, all right, like at the time there was a British rat line through a certain gate in the airport. Um, And I was like, I need you to take a picture of your family for me so they know who to identify and whatnot. And he sent me um, like a selfie of him and his family and just the looks of sheer, like, hope in the eyes of his wife, three sons, one of which was, again, a one-year-old boy, um, and seeing, like, that family just totally at the mercy of what we could try to hash together is, you know, cynical veterans who are, have now lost all faith in our government and probably our country um, broke my heart. And we sent him to the airport. The rat line got shut down before he got there. His comms went dark for like four hours. And I thought they got killed, like executed by Taliban on the way. Um, and then he popped back up. Uh, okay, he's alive. And by then you have the bid going off. Like, where do we move these families now? Um, and then as soon as the airport closed down, it turned into, okay, how are we getting them across the border? How are we getting everybody across the border to Pakistan? and without going into too much detail one of the most uh, descriptive and fitting comments i saw was by that I, I don't know who he was but i'll never forget this he was like i like how our government's policies have have turned all us veterans into coyotes and human smugglers because some of the ways to get people in pakistan were were less than savory and you're talking to people who are mercenaries and all kinds of smugglers like you name it trying to get people across um so yeah i think the whole withdrawal is pretty emotionally scarring i will say that i probably shouldn't say this out loud but i will it it broke my faith in my country It, it totally broke my faith in my country my government it cured me of a at the time 38 year ailment where i would get goosebumps every time i heard the national anthem the shit doesn't happen anymore. Like I don't wear American flag ball caps. Like you can see me and I'm wearing a Ukrainian flag ball cap, you know? Um, that was, that was a major shift for me. I think it was a major shift for a lot of veterans and the, and the guys I know. It was kind of a, a tipping point of like, we believe in this volunteered our lives and served this cause. And then I think the withdrawal kind of peeled back the layers on like, this was Vietnam part two, like everything that we railed against, Vietnam, like we did part two and part three with the knowledge of Vietnam um, in recent history. So, one of the things I think I'm, (laughs) I can tell you this categorically because when my therapist dissects my dreams, because, you know, as you build trust, shit starts coming up in dreams and means nothing to you. But when he starts peeling it apart, it represents what you're subconsciously repressing um, for the deep injuries you have and uh where i'm at right now it's it was like discussed with military industrial complex um that that deep that deep loss of faith and trying to come to terms with the morality of how i live with myself having been a willing participant in all this stuff because i can look back and i can judge it with everybody else um but when i when i go back in time I was a hundred percent willing. I was thrilled about the prospect of going to war. It's all I wanted to do. when I was in high school, pre nine Was reading books about Vietnam, Mogadishu, like combat, combat, combat. How do I get there? How do I go to war? Nobody could have talked about it. Everybody tried to talk me out of it. There were three of us in my high school. that didn't go to college because they joined the military and the other two were like Navy nuclear engineers. So, you know, I got ridiculed for it, um, for going to enlist in the Rangers. Um, And like, fast forward now, I'm 40 years old. I have two kids. I live in a beautiful house in one of the safest towns in America. And I'm benefiting from everything that this country has provided while still in contact with this family who's stuck in Afghanistan, others that made it across to Pakistan that are suffering in the most extreme terms possible while I'm living in comfort. Um, I think there's a deep... There's a deep moral issue that I have with that that I think um, I'm going to have to figure out how to come to terms with. And the only way out, because I can't change past actions, the only way out is going to be self-forgiveness, like just forgiving myself. Um, And as I sit here before you, I I don't know how to do that. I don't know what the road looks like to get there, but I know that's the only way. So that's the road I'm going to keep following because... You know, it goes back to that be the change you want to see in the world, right? Everybody wants to rail and judge and point fingers, but the people who are actually making a difference work on themselves first and change their inner state, and then they start having greater effects in the outer world. Um, That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to unfuck myself. But, yeah, I think that's probably the deepest moral issue, which I'm aware is my willing involvement in the actions of my country for 20 years post 9-11.
0: Well, I mean, you definitely mirror... Not just our combat veterans, but I think a lot of people in a lot of professions in this country. And it's something that I discuss quite a bit. I am so grateful to be an American. I mean, I I consider myself a, a citizen of the world. So, you know, I'm also British. I'm also all the other beautiful places that I got to go to. But like yourself i wore a uniform with an american flag on my shoulder and consider that i did some good things and that's the thing that the fire service is very fortunate is we don't have the same kind of moral challenges that maybe law enforcement certainly a military member would have sometimes you're put in a place where you have to do things that a firefighter would never be asked to do but when i look at the absolute fucking failure of drug prohibition and all the deaths that that's caused, when I look at the industrialization of our food and all the deaths that that's caused, when I look at the horrendous chronic disease pharmaceuticals and all the deaths that that's caused, and then they look at the wars that we didn't need to be in, or which I'll pick your brains on in a minute, maybe we needed to be in for a short time and then get the hell out. That's not America to me. America are these fucking amazing human beings that i get to talk to like yourself like your wife like my wife who are just out there in the world trying to be good people being kind to their neighbors that is america but the problem is and i get this a lot from the uk they say oh what's america like because they see fucking donald trump and joe biden and rumsfeld and all these fucking cartoon characters that find themselves at the top of the pyramid i'm like that's not us you know, there's not shootings in every school, but we have an immense problem with that. There's not gangs in every neighborhood, but we have an immense problem with that. Yes, 70% of our population is obese or overweight. We have an immense problem with that. We have a suicide epidemic. So when you adore a country, whether it's the one I came from that I still adore to this day or the one that I've served now for, you know, 20 years, you want to make it better. You want to question things. You want to improve and you want to strike down the people the selfless uh, selfish excuse me tyrants that are destroying a country and this is what i've asked a lot of veterans if you go into war with a world war ii mentality wanting to do good serving the mission is completed people come home and overall i'm sure i'm kind of disneyfying it a little bit but overall it was you know successful mission and most people felt good about what they did they may be haunted by the things they did but they knew it was just like you said now we have the industrial or the military industrial complex where there's no checks and balances to stop a war as short as quickly as we can, because if the war stops, all my friends aren't gonna make billions and trillions of dollars. So this is what I struggle with so much is the America that you're talking about isn't America? It's this fucking greed- ridden cancer of this small percentage of people. That are profiting off the deaths, illness, or service of the real American people.
1: Yeah, um, <clears throat> I'll add to what you said. That notion of this is an America. You know, it's about these these people, the men and women and children you see every day, like these these wonderful, amazing, beautiful people. Um, I see that as as the world. Right. Because I've seen those same people. I see them in my neighborhood. I see them in my community. I've also seen them in Iraq and Afghanistan and Africa, places where there were horrendous terrorist groups and, te- and attacks. But, you know, the things we're talking about um, are not perpetuated by those people. Right. It's the governments, the military industrial complexes, the extremist groups that find is I just put it these willing volunteers like I myself was. Um I, I agree with everything you said. Um, the issues that you mentioned, you know, the war on drugs is, well, it's, it's telling that we're having this conversation in which I just opened the conversation with spelling out all of the illegal drugs I've done, all the psychedelic drugs, which by the way, are practically free and available everywhere and have been since I was born. Um, the difference is, you know, Well, first off, there was a giant body of medical research showing how they could be used and were used up until Nixon started the war on drugs and shut down research in America and then pressured other countries to shut it down worldwide. That's all resurrected now. So now we know that there are such great things that psychedelics can do for us um, in the right circumstances. And now there's enough research institutions operating entirely with volunteer contributions. Thank you very much. United States government that are showing all this and and helping to change people. Um, One of the issues you, you failed to mention was uh, you know, the U S incarcerating close to 25%. It's over 20% of the world's prison population are U S citizens, a large amount of them, nonviolent drug offenders and predominantly minorities, you know, as a result of these policies. Um, And I also, yeah, the <laughs> the war on drugs, man. One of the things that really fucks me up about this is like I have to research this for my books, you know. And I wrote everywhere I write, um, or I write a book set in a country, I have to, you know, research the background, the extremist groups, and then I I get into the, I always inevitably find the history of like U.S. intervention and things that have gone terribly awry. And there's always U.S. military equipment in in use by extremist groups because it was these huge military industrial complex, like defense sales deals. And then they sell it on the black market and their government gets overthrown. Um, and we kind of go through this cycle of arming the world over and over and then fighting conflicts with the people we've armed. Um, but one of the things that really threw me off is I, I made the mistake of writing a book set in Colombia and had to deep dive the war on drugs. Um, and it's it's pretty horrifying. Like, you know, we had planned Colombia in the 90s and we sprayed roundup militarized like industrial grade roundup like the same thing that there's all these mass lawsuits um so we basically sprayed that it was monsanto was the company and they were using junk science to show how safe it was and had scientists on the payroll um signing ghost written papers um so we sprayed that over coca fields and water supplies rainforest everything else and now there are untold numbers of children being born with horrific birth defects Um, that we'll never see a dime from the U.S. government anywhere else. And by the way, we only sprayed that over the left-wing extremist fields while the right-wing paramilitaries endorsed by the government were perfectly free to engage in equal amounts of carnage. So they never put a dent in cocaine production. And cocaine production, in fact, increased and has been ever since. Um, You know, and every time you see a Coast Guard, hurrah, like look at all the kilos we seized. The, the most optimistic estimates are that they seize maybe 10%, most likely much lower. Um, and then the drug dealers will literally load up a ship with that, send it to get captured, drop hints through their known informants. So Coast Guard or whoever, Customs can interdict this so they can run their main load undetected. Um, so nothing's put a dent in it. Nothing is ever going to put a dent in it. Um and this, you know, has been a half century running failure where no politician will say, Oh, it's been a success, or even say it's going okay. Um and the most credit I can I can is um you know, I, I talk to somebody, I, I I'm lucky to have some subject matter experts in different areas where I, I consult when I write books and like Help me get the facts straight, help me like show me what side I'm not considering. And when I wrote that book on Colombia, I talked to a guy who's pretty well placed in intelligence and has a lot of experience operating in Colombia. And I was like, all right, here's the way I'm done. And I laid out everything I've just told you and more. And I was like, Am I like what am I missing? What's the positive side? And he was like, You're not missing anything. You're right about all that. And by the way, that was considered like a US foreign policy success and became the model they used in Afghanistan because we essentially threw a bunch of money at Colombia, solved the real problem, which is preventing the FARC from uh, marching on Bogota, like marching on the national capital and taking over the country and toppling our biggest ally in Latin America. Um, he's like, there weren't a lot of good answers for that. And the answer they came up with playing Colombia, they threw a lot of money at it. It stopped the FARC from taking over. You know, they basically used counter-narcotics authorities to um, to facilitate an anti-communist agenda. And he was like, that was the model that they used for Afghanistan. Basically, like, we can keep pumping money at this thing, and it's going to go away. Obviously, it did not.
0: Well, you talked about the prison population. Um, the The documentary 13th, I think, is something, you know, is a, is a film that everyone should watch. But you, I think that like you said it's like 20-something percent. We have 20-something percent of the world's incarcerated men and women, but America actually makes up 4% of the world population. We actually, Which is fucking horrifying. Yeah, we consume 75% of the world's opioids, yet we're only 4% of the world's population. You know what I mean? So with with this whole chess-beating greatest country in the world, we should be. It's not a competition, but we are a nation of great people, but we've allowed these few tyrants to... To, you know, just take advantage of so many people, like I said, their money, their health, all these things. And it's, you know, this vicious circle because my, you know, person A's product makes me ill, you know, makes me fat, gives me diabetes. Well, that's okay. Person B's product has got metformin and, you know, cholesterol meds and hypertension meds. So I'll just take care of them. And so, you know, you've got this. The, these people that it doesn't matter if I get so-and-so sick, you know, the cigarettes made them have COPD. Oh, it's fine. I got a CPAP machine that I sell. We'll sell them that, you know. So it's this vicious circle of people creating customers rather than getting to the root cause like we're talking about with the mental health thing. And when you look even further back than Nixon, Harry Anslinger in the 30s was the, the real genesis of drug prohibition and he kind of forced it on the UK and Australia and some of these other countries so now we're looking at almost a 100 year longitudinal study on the success of the war on drugs as a firefighter paramedic in America i've pulled yellow sheets over 15 year olds that were fighting over turf in an apartment complex that their parents you know fucking rented you know i've found dead prostitutes in dumpsters i've dealt you know interacted with so many homeless people you've seen you know like i said the 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 violence and the overdoses and all these things that's all a mental health problem that's the 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 group that if you had put it in a legal medical arena a lot of those men and women would never ended up in that place but with us being such a huge consumer of these illicit drugs We've empowered the underworld and created these problems in Colombia. We've created these horrendous things happening at the Mexican border. And what's our response? Oh, we'll build a wall. Yeah, you fucking nailed it, Donald Trump. Think That's amazing. Genius. Why didn't we fucking think of that? Well, how about we cut the head off the snake, we stop demonizing the drugs that our own people are using that we're forcing into the shadows. We model off Switzerland or Portugal or some of these countries that have done that with huge success that's how you address the war on drugs. But when do you ever fucking hear anyone talking about this? It's always, you know, slamming their their fists on the desk. This is your brain on drugs. We're tough on drugs. We're tough on crime, you know. But it's bullshit because behind the scenes, they're making money hand over fist with all these operations.
1: Yeah, somebody's gonna be profiting. Um, man, one of the most mind numbing things I I came across is you know in researching the war on drugs, like. Every 10 or 20 years, the government commissions like a major RAND Corporation think tank study on how to effectively combat drugs. And every single time they come back with the cheapest, most cost effective and indeed most effective option is to treat it um, at the source of demand to provide rehabilitation programs for people. And it's done at a fraction of the cost of what it would cost to um, to keep somebody in a prison for a year. Right. Prison cost for a year is something ranges from like. Is somewhere in the $25,000 to $32,000 range, if I recall correctly. Those programs can be run for like $3,000 a year per individual, which, you know, mirror what some of these other countries you referenced are doing, where you you sign up, you basically get legal injections where they taper you off your dose off over time. But in the meantime, as a part of that, you have to um, be undergoing social services to find employment, find um, a place to live. So, then the drug dealers can't sell drugs because everybody's getting it free. None of the junkies actually want to be a junkie and they're getting weaned off with professional help. So, that's the most cost effective way to do it, indisputably, as established through these constant studies. Um, the least cost effective way to do it is targeting at the source, foreign intervention over broad, and then in between is trying to stop it at the border. Um, which stopping at the border is like eight times more expensive. And then trying to target the source is like 25 times more expensive. Um, if I'm remembering these figures correctly, but it's in the ballpark. So anybody wants to fact check me have a field day because I'm in the neighborhood. Um, and we make this conscious decision as a country or rather the government policy makers um, make this conscious decision to continue doing things the way we've done it, which prohibition took what 12 years for them to realize it was a complete disaster Um, and by the way, (laughs) you want to, you want to take out the addictive substances that kill a thousand times more people than all legal drugs put together. It's tobacco and alcohol, right? Indisputably until I, I will throw this in their favor, um, until fentanyl came along and opioid addiction came along, which is a result of the big pharma model. So yeah. I mean, the information's all out there and none of this is being perpetuated by the, the quote unquote people we're talking about, the people you see every day. These wonderful human beings that are in countries around the world is perpetuated by governments, military industrial complexes, um, private prison industry, the people who have the lobbyists to influence the political system and legislation. At this point, it's just become a self-licking lollipop. Politicians, you know, getting hired or getting elected for saying they'll be tough on crime. If they're in one party or if they're in another party, they'll be tough in foreign policy abroad, but the same thing happens regardless. And every administration continues doing business the way they always have, and we keep going down the same road.
0: Yeah, I agree completely. And this is the other side of this conversation as well, is how many people walk out of a place of worship and yet are about as far from buddha jesus you know whoever their their prophet is in the how they they view the homeless the prostitutes the addicts of the world you're like you just fucking walked out of a church where i'm pretty sure jesus would have been out amongst those people trying to help and you're saying this is your brain on drugs those people need to be i've had people say oh why are we wasting money on um narcan why don't we just let them die and these are the same people that came out of A place of worship where it's all about love and kindness and compassion and gratitude so there's another disconnect there ethically people are saying one thing you know hashtag thoughts and prayers but then they're walking out the door and are disgusted that this person in front of them doesn't have a home anymore so this is another thing we got to do and look look in the mirror not only question the the prohibition which by the way came immediately on the heels of the failure of the prohibition of alcohol but it was Harry Anslinger who was a screaming racist, had his own mental health problems because those two definitely go together. And it was job justification. He walked into a, 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 an office where they were closing down the very thing he was employed to do. So he created something else to demonize. So when we actually look at it at a place from a place of kindness and compassion, you help the people who are hurting. You don't chase the people who are selling the drugs. The people that are hurting heal, and it's not going to be everyone. This is what I hate to people like, well, that guy over there is still an addict. Okay, but those hundred aren't anymore. So that's what we got to look at. You do you help most of the people. Now, all of a sudden, supply and demand, basic economics. If you're a drug dealer, as you said, and you have got hardly any customers in the US anymore because it's legal, you know, it's, it's we've removed the, uh, um, oh God, what's the word? Decriminalized. We decriminalize addiction. Well, now you're going to have to start doing something else. So to me, if a dumbass fucking English firefighter can figure this shit out, why is it that the people that have trillions of our dollars aren't doing the things that are plain as day to so many people that come on this show?
1: Yeah, and out of the note of Narcan, you've got big pharma creating opioid epidemic and then fentanyl epidemic. And then they create the product that helps you know, <laughs> taper the the deaths of products that they are also producing and profiting from. So yeah, it does become this endless cycle. Um, and I, I think it all comes down to like, are you helping yourself? Or are you helping others? Right. The people that figure you just mentioned trying to stay in a job, helping yourself. There's, there's politicians who are interested in helping themselves revolving door politics with these, you know, companies that they are sit on the boards of after they get out or whatever. Um, You know, all the lobbyists working to influence policy to, to all keep the money flowing among policymakers and power brokers. Um, And meanwhile, the everybody else suffers and the hope you see are the people who are trying to help others. And they're doing it without much assistance from the government. Um, no matter what country they're in. And it comes down to, uh, you know, you can't make money off of certain things, right? Like if I were big pharma, I would be publishing, you know, as many, I'd be sponsoring as many studies as I could to show that microdosing is ineffective, that psychedelics don't work because if I'm big pharma, I can't patent a mushroom, right? Same as they couldn't patent, a marijuana plant, right? CBD,
0: they had a big war on the CBD industry. They
1: had a big war with CBD. Yes. Do you see like the junk science and the the arguments and Oh, watch out the dangers. But I I think the public is waking up and in fact, well aware that, you know, they've been misled. And one of the, one of the good things about it, um, speaking of the psychedelic revolution that we're in currently like 2.0, right? We had the sixties, obviously that, that went great. I'm sorry. I missed it. Um, but what we're in currently where all this stuff is on the brink of becoming breakthrough therapies, like where even the FDA is like poised to make these things breakthrough therapies um, is that people are kind of taking their own health into their own hands, right? They're going away from the Western model of medicine, which is I show up to the office, you tell me what pill to take. Symptom goes away. I'm not treating the root cause. I think I've definitely been seeing more and more people taking an, an interest in their health and what's actually going to make a difference. And Pursuing whatever means that they deem right for themselves, regardless of what legislation says Um, and the ease with which I glided seamlessly into the psychedelic community shows that it's like it's been going on for a really long time. You know, like I didn't understand all the people freaking out about weed becoming legal because I was like, it's always been legal. okay? like if I could have bought a dime bag of weed off any given sixth grader. From the time I was born until now, like it's not that illegal now, is it? It's a convenient excuse to target certain communities or people or add on trumped up charges or meet quotas of uh, arrests or whatever else you need. But uh, it's never been hard to find. None of this stuff has been hard to find. What's been missing is the data and the research on how to use it effectively, how to heal from using it how to use it responsibly. And now that data is all coming into the public light because enough academic institutions have taken it upon themselves to run their own studies. Um, and even then, they're doing it with psilocybin. They're not touching LSD, not because it doesn't have the same effects, which is known to us from the 50s and early 60s research that establishes clearly LSD comes from uh, the ergot fungus. It's a synthesized you know, plant uh, component. Same with psilocybin. When they dose at Johns Hopkins, they are using synthetic psilocin, which is the active ingredient of psilocybin because they need to precisely measure the doses. Um, So now all this research is coming out. They're curing it like MDMA. They found like 70 percent success rate in curing people with treatment resistant post-traumatic stress, not just because it's MDMA. That's just MDMA community has been focusing on PTSD. Uh, psilocybin has been focused on, uh, depression and addiction, but I I think there's a lot. And then nobody's touching psilocybin because of the stigma, because they know they can get approved for psilocybin studies, but not LSD because the government stigma and the junk science and the urban legends that have been perpetuated for, you know, since the sixties. But like, even the MDMA thing screws me up because, okay, they've, they've shown this, they can cure, you know, and that was the result of one particular guy getting his PhD and dedicating his life to the study of MDMA in con you know, in contravention of all the bureaucratic loopholes to legally do it. Um, so one guy name escapes me at present was responsible for all that to get us where we are today. And now they say unequivocally they can cure PTSD with psychedelic, psychedelic assisted therapy in conjunction with high dose MDMA. But we've got 22 vets killing each, killing themselves every day. God knows how many firefighters, first responders, policemen killing themselves every day. How long is it going to take before MDMA is legal? I don't know the answer to that, but I know it's not going to be tomorrow, which it most certainly should be. Like, it should have been a long time ago. The data has been out there, but it's still going to be this process of, oh, how do we change the legislation because we are so like overregulated that it's it's insane.
0: I had a guy from Bristol, which is the next town over, next city over from where I grew up, uh, Dr. Ben Sessa, who's done MDMA-led counseling in the UK. But again, because of prohibition, it's uh, medical trials only. And it's it's really, really sad because I got a friend who's just battling with horrendous alcoholism. And I know damn well that that would probably be game-changing for him. But I can't say, hey, go to this doctor because it's purely studies. And unless you... Happen to get in at the right time when they're doing the study, then you're shit out of luck. That was extremely available when I was younger. I grew up in the rave generation. Um, you know, when I was in, uh, it's funny, I said I had a friend last time we recorded because I was still employed. Now I can say it. So when I was a stuntman in Japan, we did that a lot. I had the fucking time of my life. Hugged a bunch of Japanese people, danced on speakers, and that was it. Now I don't condone it. Uh, you know, I don't, um, suggest it recreationally because like with everything with alcohol the the next day or two is a very um opposite effect and you feel very gray for a couple of days but it certainly wasn't something that was going to make me stab someone you know what i mean it wasn't the kind of drugs that are completely legal but firefighters and paramedics and police officers respond to every single day but that was demonized so now you've got ben having amazing success with people with you know as you said with ptsd And this prohibition is still a barrier to a drug that actually initially started off as a marriage therapy uh, pharmaceutical. So they gave it to, to couples that were struggling. All the kind of barriers came down. They were very physical with each other. And I'm sure at some point it worked for a lot of people. And it was probably actually helping with their mental health struggles that were causing the trauma that was even creating that fiction in that relationship in the first place. So yet another layer to this conversation not only is prohibition causing so much death and destruction in our country but it's stopping our veterans firefighters and civilians from getting a therapy that is clearly extremely extremely successful
1: yeah and i that's one of the things i I constantly butt heads with um you know in a respectful way some of the the people that i seek for advice on my book so these are well placed government, intelligence, military circles. Um, and one of the one of the arguments I have with them, and we always agree, respect, disagree respectfully. We have great conversations, but um, you know, one of the main things I hear against it's like, oh, well, it's going to be crazy if there's like addicts everywhere without, and they don't understand. Well, first off, psychedelics are anti-addictive, right? You can't, you do a dose of mushrooms today. You try to do the same thing tomorrow. You have a much diminished effect. Third day you'll feel nothing. So you have to space it out. You build up tolerance so quickly with psychedelics. It's impossible to get addicted. You, nobody has the money to do ever larger doses um, or the supply to do ever larger doses. So it's completely anti-addictive. Second off, we do have addicts everywhere, right? We have nicotine addicts, caffeine addicts, alcohol addicts. By the way, nobody nobody is is taking psilocybin or LSD and trying to get in their car and drive home from the bar, right? Like... People are generally doing this in safe, contained home environments, you know, because they respect the substance. Um, But addicts of these other substances, alcohol in particular, killing each other and civilians in horrendous numbers and always have. And I I'm a huge fan of alcohol. It worked great for me. I'm not trying to badmouth it, but it is irresponsibly used. More than anything else that gets other people killed. And third, like. I've gotten the argument, well, you know, when you go to, I, you know, I was talking to a guy who spent some time in Yemen. Um, the last book, the book I'm finishing now is set in Yemen. And he's like, look, man, um, I don't know anybody that's gone to Yemen, myself included, that thinks legalization is a good idea. Because you go to Yemen and they're chewing cot, right? So it leaves this shrub. It's also common in Somalia, across Africa. It's legal in some countries, not in others. But in Yemen and Somalia in particular, everyone's addicted. Um, they're constantly chewing leaves. They're spending a huge part of their income on these leaves, which you basically chew a giant wad with vigor for an hour or two and get the buzz of like an espresso. Um, and I and they're like you you go through Sanaa, the capital city or you know, prior to the Houthis taking it over. And by the way, thank you very much inheriting a bunch of U.S. military armored vehicles that have been sold to the international market and taken over, sold in the black market. Um, So in that capital city prior to it being taken over by the Houthis and I'm certain still to this day they those little plastic deli bags you see in like a deli to bag your vegetables and stuff they call that the national bird of Yemen because there are flocks of them coasting across the sky at all times day or night um, because everybody is on this substance and I did the legwork to look into cots to integrate into my book and surprise it's not fucking addictive it's not physically addictive. It doesn't even make the top 10 with caffeine, alcohol, nicotine, cocaine, fill in the blank. It is at best. Some people would argue psychologically a different psychologically addictive. And by the way, it's illegal in a shitload of African countries where people just chew it recreationally and have no problems. So why is it? crippling the economies and the infrastructure of Yemen and Somalia, where arable land is not being used to grow food, but to grow cot because it's more profitable. People are, you know, breaking their, breaking their, you know, not bank accounts, but they're spending 25% of their living wage, which is almost nothing on this substance. Um, The answer I would argue is that Yemen and Somalia are failed states in every sense of the word. And people are living in such dire states of poverty um, some of the most intense human suffering on the planet occurs in those two countries um, and has for decades. Um, and they're, they're using what they have available to them to try to escape or overcome or cope with horrendous fucking circumstances that could be rectified with proper governance.
0: That reminds me of, um, I think it was Sea uh, Spiracy, that documentary, and this has been you know verified by other sources too, but you think about special operations, you think about the, the SEAL Team 6 and the Somalian pirates and the rescue of the, the naval captain. You know, these Somalis are these, these horrendous people. How dare they, you know, take over the ship? Well, when you learn the origin story again of how Somalia got desperate, I mean, not, as you said, as a multifaceted thing, but one of the contributing factors was that international massive trawlers were coming in and overfishing the coast of Somalia. So these fishermen that would go out and be able to provide for their families and I'm sure sell their catch, now they weren't able to catch anywhere close to what they were. So as with Prohibition, as with so many of these things, it's so easy to say, you know, Mogadishu, those those those, you know, um horrendous savages in this country, but what world were these people brought up in? Which again goes back to my gratitude of this country. Aside from the shit bags that we see on our fucking screens, whether it's some Dipshit, extreme, hyper-triggered shithead with pink hair, screaming, with holding a sign, or whether it's some fucking bright orange turd with the toupee talking about building walls. The actual human beings in this country are are, are amazing, and as you said, I've I've traveled the world, and i haven't been a lot of the you know the more. Um, the the lower income nations as much but you see the same people and I ask a question you know what was the the kind of some of the savagery that you saw that that justified some of the things that you did overseas and some of the conversations now but the other side of that that question is talk to me about the kindness and compassion and it's always the same this you know the Afghani families the Iraqi people the kindness and compassion because again in their countries A few people have oppressed the masses, whether it's slavery, whether it's the Nazi regime. It wasn't a German farmer. It's like, you know what? I don't like the Jews. I'm going to go, you know, go stick them in an oven. No, it was these fucking lunatics that managed to use propaganda and poverty and desperation to sway some of the people. And the rest were just probably oblivious the whole time. So, you know, again, with this addiction, you fix the suffering, you fix the addiction.
1: Yeah, and going back to your point about the Somali pirates, and there's going to be savages over there, but you look into what goes into them doing it. The same situation, I'm sure, is going on many places in the world, but um, in Nigeria in particular, um, on the on the Niger River, the, the oil companies have come in and sufficiently polluted the river that it's killed almost all the fish, and the ones that remain are inedible. So all these fishing communities along the river, um, they turn to – piracy, kidnapping, whatever they have to do, much like Somalia. And to me, um, it all comes down to the question, you don't even have to give me an answer, but what would you do to feed your family, right? I know your answers, same as mine, same as everybody's. You'd do fucking anything. And if I had no means to make an income, no matter where I lived, no matter how I was raised, and it came time to feed my family, I would absolutely turn to piracy or kidnapping or whatever else the fuck I had to do, as would any human being of sound mind. And, yeah, a lot of these issues come down to there's not the functional infrastructure, the government's not serving the people. You know, in Nigeria, it's, it's a national sport. The politicians openly drain billions every year from the National Bank to pad their pockets. Um, and you see less extreme examples all over the world. So, yeah, it 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 comes down to the the governance issue. Like, OK, let's say I'm trying to start my my marauding band of pirate extremists or whatever. I can drive 15 minutes down the road to North Carolina State University. Tell me how much success I would have trying to sell them to come join my movement. Fucking not. They go fuck yourself, dude. Like I'm I'm wearing boat shoes and chinos like I got a date tonight, like life's going pretty good career ahead of me. You go to Yemen, Somalia, Nigeria, um, any number of countries in the world with with zero infrastructure, zero effective government. You have no problem finding those people. And in fact, that's where all these you know, extremist insurgent like movements spring up from. All the things that defy explanation like ISIS, like they come from giant masses of disenfranchised youth with no opportunities, no way to feed their families. If they have families, no future if they don't have families. Um, and that creates the breeding ground. You know, the ineffective governance creates the breeding ground for everything that we're trying to rid the world of.
0: Well, linking that to your writing then, because I want to make sure that we get to that. We've been talking for an hour and a half already. Um, You've had this journey with your own uh, mental health, for lack of a better word, your kind of healing journey that you've been on the last five years. We've also seen the COVID, you know, the pandemic. You've had the withdrawal. You've had some other real powerful um, issues that have happened that there have been some incredible people involved, but also, again, some horrendous things with government. And there's something I've underlined recently. Great leadership is going to unify a nation when they're struggling. Poor leadership is going to divide a nation. And that spans both sides of the aisle. So no anyone who's a staunch Republican or or um Democrat, you both fucking suck. Just so you know that. Because we haven't had someone in a red or a blue tie that's done anything good, that's unified, that's addressed obesity, that's addressed a mental health issue, that's talked about the multiple elements of the violence in our schools. So that was just a fucking segue for me to throw in about leadership. But anyway, but now, so you had all these things. I blanked for a second there. You had all these things that have happened the last few years. How has that shaped you as a writer and the stories and you know the, the, um, the scenarios that your protagonist has found himself in, in later books?
1: Yes, yeah, so as much as possible, um, I try to shine light on it with my books. I try to shine light on everything we just talked about, right? One book will be war on drugs heavy. One book will be, you know, having something else, depending on what part of the world. Um, but what what I never do in my books is that savages abroad concept. Um, and in fact, that's one of my favorite things to play with thematically in writing is how the two sides of the warriors on the ground fighting each other have more in common with each other than they do with the respective political parties that sent them to go kill one another. Um and also the notion of the the people pulling the strings that never see the battlefield that can make these decisions, um, you know, to to send people off to war without ever setting foot to themselves, without considering the human cost, um, or if they've considered it like not caring because it achieves whatever aim they want um while the guys on the ground who have more in common with their enemy than the policymakers? In many cases, um, they are witness to the the human devastation and despair, and that the people who suffer most of all are the innocent civilians who are trapped in these battlegrounds, in these combat zones that span the world over in varying degrees from major armed conflict to low grade insurgencies. Um, that is something that is yeah I found again and again in my research and I try to portray the human cost as much as possible like in my genre the smart thing to do commercially would be you know write an American patriot figure who's wrapped in a he's wrapped in a flag and patriotic loyal moral to a fault knows three martial arts you know he's The ultimate badass. And if it weren't for these corrupt politicians and um, these evil savages abroad, you know, he would make the world perfect. Um, It's kind of that Western movie mentality of, you know, the hero rides down from the hills, fixes everything, fights the bad guy and then rides back off, um, which has not been how it is in my experience. So I like to show actual human beings in these situations, witnessing the civilian carnage, witnessing um, the carnage they're inflicting in their enemy and vice versa while respecting them as fellow warriors and worthy adversaries. Um, and then also I like to play around a lot with the moral gray area involved in that in terms of what are they reporting at the headquarters? What are they not reporting in order to continue their mission? Um, their differences with the, with the bosses who are sitting back in the air conditioned headquarters, sending them off to fight and die for geopolitical aims. Um, and I also like to do, I like to touch on, the the healing process. So, my whole first series, the American Mercenary series, is basically one six book long protracted metaphor of like my transition out of the military and trying to regain humanity, trying to find whatever shreds of the soul you have remaining and build a foundation and finding threads of hope um, through exposure to other people and children and kind of building your life back up and finding meaning again. Um, and in the current series, um, in the shadow strike series, which I'm writing now, I like to, I like to work with those themes of like getting right and staying right. And the the people are affected by PTSD. And one guy admits, you know, he's on antidepressants or somebody else trying therapy and this hasn't worked or that's worked. Um, most recently to the credit of the guy who was arguing me about the war on drugs. Um, great, great guy, good friend of mine, but very, very much a rule follower, um, you know who was talking to me about Yemen, and why it shouldn't be legal in America, because everybody will be strung out in the streets. Um, what I disagree with, and this is to his credit, he actually came to me after he was reviewing my last book, and he was like, "Hey man, you need to bring up um, microdosing. Like you need to have these guys microdosing because I've read everything you've written, and you always, when something works for you, you put it in the book for the characters, right? Like you make that it works or doesn't work for them." Um, but you you kind of show this, this way to deal with things and cope with things. And, like, microdosing has been a huge pivotal thing for you. And you need to include it in your series for, like, people who are hurting and read this. And this is to this guy's immense credit because he doesn't agree legally or morally with microdosing. But he knows it's worked for me and he's seen that change. And he's like, I know what you're trying to accomplish and you need to do this. So I just, in the book I'm finishing now, minor spoiler, like, I had this scene where the team leader is like talking in this awkward conversation where he discovers like the, you know, everybody else on his team has is microdosing and has been, and the medic is supervising it. And it's gotten one guy off antidepressants and another guy off drinking um, and another guy sleeping well for the first time in, you know, six years. um, And he faces kind of this internal shame that like one, they kept it from him and two that. They kept it from because they knew that he would react negatively because he has this old school mentality of, drink your feelings and you know you go to war you put it away you don't bring it home um and he's seeing how much that has kind of eroded his humanity so those themes definitely progress um book to book but that's been almost the that's been the best part of writing for me is emphasizing those human factors and when there are great tragedies like the afghanistan withdrawal or things i did in my research about the war on drugs or suffering in a certain area I like to inject that human narrative that it's unifying. It's not us versus them. Even if these two sides are closing with each other to kill each other, even if one is a terrorist, like he believes in what he's doing and here's his background of why he believes that. And here's why it's the only option available to him. And he's in fact, very fucking good at what he does. Um, I, I just love the unifying aspects in a genre that should be anything but
0: well firstly, I think it's it's amazing to to break that mold because it's kind of like with <laughs> I talk about this in a podcast you know if I videoed myself and I had guns and Bibles in the back of the video shot, I'd probably get more likes and views on social media and all that stuff, but that's not what this is about. this is about having real conversations and not. Yeah, you know, th- that's done well by certain people, but my particular thing is it's about the actual human beings and you got to take off all that shit. Those are just things. It's uniforms, it's tools, it's books. But, you know, this is the, the human conversation. Um, I wanted to ask you as well. There's a lot of people in the creative space, especially with alcohol, that were scared that if they became sober or, you know, at least stopped drinking nearly all the time, that it would stifle their creativity. Did you have that fear prior to in any of this journey? And then talk to me about what was actually on the other side.
1: Um, I definitely had that fear earlier in my civilian drinking career. So after I got out, I knew it worked. And, you know, to make a living by writing fiction is a survival sport, to say the least. Trying to break in with zero industry connections, like, you know, nobody in Hollywood, you know, no other authors, and you're just hitting self-publish on Amazon, the book, you have no idea how people react and you're not using a pen name, you're using your actual picture because you're trying to burn bridges behind you, um, which is what I did. Uh, It's extremely stressful. And I wouldn't have dreamed of like attempting sobriety because whatever keeps the creativity flowing and the books coming was the law for me. Um, And I've been in a position more recently where, you know, I had, 15 books out or whatever and there's enough of a foundation my readers have supported me wherever my writing goes my I've got these amazingly supportive readers um whoever's not weeded out in the first book of any of my series leaving a one star review and wishing i was dead which is a lot of people um they follow and they read everything in the series and they read all my other books so i knew they would support me and i saw that over the course of a few years so i was in a better position with more books out to um, to test the waters on it Um, and by then I don't think I had that much of a fear of it because my writing process was so streamlined because I did have the readers where if I, if it did take me a few months to get back on my stride, um, they would support me like their family, they're incredible. Um, but when I started doing psychedelics, I was like, holy shit, there is so much more to creativity than loosening up your mind dropping some inhibitions and kind of getting out of your own head and letting the words flow there's a place for that uh certainly that's how i got started hundred percent but since starting to do psychedelics i case in point i recently read the dune um, like the science fiction book dune they made they're making a series of graphic novels like hardcovers they're unbelievable Uh, it's two volumes out and i read them both with my daughter which is really cool because I can't give her a thousand page book and be like, figure it out. But we could sit there and like read it together. I talked to her about the story and the plot points and she's really interested in that stuff. So we were reading together and I hadn't read the book for years, but reading it recently, I was like, okay, I'm going to look up Frank Herbert, this author's name, because he's touching on these deep themes of um, human redemption and these epic, epic level, um, mythologies where I was like, this motherfucker was either on psilocybin or LSD, which one? Literally. And I pulled up his Wikipedia page and scrolled down and it it turned out to be psilocybin. But like I can recognize and work now when I see something that is so like heartbreakingly beautiful or touches on these deep, deep themes of humanity that are far more profound than what I could touch on with alcohol. And not in every case in some cases they're totally sober and in some cases it's um they've done psychedelics not that that's an easy ticket but it does certainly make you aware of so much more in the depth and breadth of life that you don't see in your day-to-day existence um so i kind of saw that for me as like wow that's the way ahead for me trying to take my writing to the next level i know where i'm at i'm coming up on you know um I'll be at like 20 books next year. And I, I think I've gotten as good as I'm going to get doing things the way I've always done, which is one of my decisions that factored into quitting drinking. So since I've quit, um, what I have been doing is LSD microdose twice a week while I'm producing a rough draft. So I do Monday, Thursday, you have a day two effect the day after you get, you still um, have some effects. But for me, it's been a very clean Zen like focus. um, And has elevated my i don't want to say my writing it's elevated my consciousness so much more than alcohol ever did um and it kind of puts me in the best place possible to write the best work of which i'm capable right now and at that point the way i see it now like the only limiting factor is my experience and i'm working on that by producing like you know, producing books pretty rapidly, writing across multiple series, doing first person only, doing third person only, doing first and third person only series, trying to build my skills to the point where for my next series, it's something I'm incapable of writing now, but I know what I want. I'm just not good enough. Um, And I think 20 books would be a minimum threshold to even begin plotting it. But like, I see where I want to go and I'm, I'm willing to do whatever work is required to get there. And the work that's required in my mind is like, getting my shit together doing the therapy like finally rooting out a lot of deep held issues that I've been suppressing for years and years and trying to make myself a better human being in the interest of elevating my art uh, in the future
0: so I've been writing my second book now when we when we spoke I was telling you I was hoping to write a book one day wrote the book during COVID the first one working on a fiction now so I'm in in your realm completely different genre just a as a standalone story that i'm right off the bat hoping to make it into a show or a film huge huge ask but for me it's it's a specific message in this story that i think a lot of people need to hear and if you could illustrate it through the screen now you've hit the most amount of people the, you know th- i think the the number of people that pick up an actual book has obviously diminished over the last few decades with the you know devices and screens etc but if you want to fi- really get an idea of how busy your mind is, try and write fiction. That's what I found. Because <laughs> holy shit, when I wrote my first one, I'm using anecdotes from my own life and I fictionalized some of them just to protect the innocent, et cetera, et cetera. But I could close my eyes, kind of relive that memory and then try and articulate it in, in a way that, that was, you know, as as palatable on paper as possible. But creating these people from nothing... And still telling this story, you know. I heard uh, Jack Carr talking about the um, the Post-it on his on his screen with the theme. There's a theme, a very strong theme. But and I'm using a lot of real life events because you know, for me, there's so many amazing stories out there in the world of, of facts and in you know real lived experiences. But I just did a hypnotherapy session with someone about five days ago, uh, through one of the guests that uh, that I just had on, and it was not so much oh I've got trauma I want to address but it was like the opposite like I wanted to use it to to get these walls down to allow me to be creative I've lived a pretty amazing life yet I'm feeling like you know I'm in a white room (laughs) nothing's coming to me so uh so yeah so I think actually for anyone trying to be creative is a, a very interesting barometer On how clear your mind is and and as you're talking about then you're like okay it's absolute fucking chaos that gives you something very positive to go okay i'm gonna start i'm gonna start doing some housekeeping in here because i know where i want to be and i've just seen now i'm i'm far enough here so it might be binge drinking it might be you know suicide ideation or it might be the opposite it might be i don't feel terrible but i'm certainly not creative like i was when i was 8 and i could run around with a stick and create an entire world how do i get back to there
1: yeah and you just you just highlighted it you said you're 8 years old like you were creative then like everybody's creative as children um certainly and i think the the creativity is there within all of us i i, I don't think that there's anybody who's genuinely everybody will say they're not creative but i don't think there's anybody that genuinely doesn't have that what happens is it gets obscured with the thoughts, minutia, obligations, overthinking things, whatever personal issues we have going on in our lives. Um, and the the point or the the exercise becomes to get that stuff out of the way and, and touch base with your creativity. So it's similar, in my mind, it's similar to meditation, right? Like I meditate every day. I have for years. Um, I'm fucking terrible at it, right? Like there's days where my timer goes off like, holy shit, I was just in a thought loop the whole time. But enough times, you know, you, you catch yourself thought spinning off and you bring yourself back to your breathing. That's kind of what I think creativity is. The impulse is there. Right. Like meditation, we've all got that inner peace there. It's just so clouded with. All these other thoughts and issues and. Um, you know, the hamster wheel of our brains going all the time that we're conditioned to from modern society. Um, but it's that's all clouds in the sky, like the blue skies beyond. So getting to it, I think becomes a matter of like clearing your mind, touching base to your inner creativity. And like, there's certainly things I do to get in the zone. You know, I do noise canceling headphones. I do high tempo, like dark techno music um, which everybody's got their own preference, but that for me works to like get me kind of energetically focused and it becomes whatever you can do to get yourself in that zone uh, with varying degrees of success every day, but, but continually coming back to it. And in the meantime, um, leveraging the obstacles, right? Like that expression, like you know, the obstacle is the way. You're doing it now. It sounds like using your past experiences, um, and also you can use your current experience. Like the stresses you're you're undergoing, the stresses your friends are undergoing, all those issues you think are keeping you from creativity can become, to put it bluntly, like character points. They they can become characters, threads of new characters, um, subplots within existing characters. Um, so very quickly for me, because I had no writing experience, no training, and I was just like, I'm gonna do this, right? Um, like never let fear or common sense stop you. I'm just going for it, getting out of the military, and I said I put my name, my face on it. So I couldn't just bow out. Um, but I quickly learned I had to cannibalize everything, like. Stories I had from previous experiences, things I was witnessing and people around me, thoughts, fears, nightmares, all of that. Um, like when you're desperate to, to get books out and you could be a month away from not having a job at any given time um, and wanting desperately to stay in this profession. Uh, I quickly started using finding inspiration everywhere um, because, you know, in the end, like. It becomes that. Art imitating life concept where all that stuff is out there and it becomes how are you drawing on it? How are you feeding off it? How are you parlaying it back into the work? Um, and I've certainly got stuff in my work. You know, um I had to write a domestic scene with my hero and whatever. And I have the scene where minor scenes, like a small setup for later in the book, but like he's like doing the dishes in the morning. His daughter wants, you know, a cookie or whatever. And he like gives it to her. Wife comes down, like catches on and like. Quiet like, comes up to him and is like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, yeah, just doing the dishes, like, whatever. And it's like, you drank a lot last night. And it becomes this really awkward, and he's describing, like, how complex women are. And, you know, if she, if I went over one night before, this is when she lets me know, like, first thing in the morning. And it's always, like, this moment of, like, okay, how's this going to turn out? And then, you know, questioning, like, how how committed is she? And how much am I fucking up? And all these insecurities that a husband or father would have. Like, that scene came from, like, my wife saying that to me, you know, when I wrote it. Um, I think the same day. So events like that, you can just continually I, I would cannibalize everything thoughts, fears, insecurities, stories, people you meet, personality traits. Um, and the more you do that, the more it starts to come to you organically, where you can work with a blank slate and think of how you would twist that, how you would, come with a new character that's counterpointing those things that came from your actual life, um, and then a little bit of research and you're off to the races. But the creativity is always there. Beautiful. He's got to get out of his way.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. Well, you have three series: the um Shadow Strike, Spider Heist, and American Mercenary series. But then you have Her Dark Silence, a standalone book. So talk to me about, you know, why that particular book and if there's any kind of story behind that particular route that you took with that one.
1: Yeah, there is a story behind that, and it's funny because that's it's an unsellable book in a premise concept. Um and the fact that it's a standalone it's unsellable. So like shadow strike book one has got like 11,000 reviews spiders, like 6,000 reviews. You can see like a lot of people have gone through these, um, her dark silence. Um, it's funny that it always comes up because nobody reads it, but (laughs) the, the book came to me after, um, it was when I did that five day ketamine trip, right? I went down to Charleston, got a hotel and I went to this clinic for couple hours a day and one hour was spent just soaring through the cosmos on ketamine. Um, and it was like this semi-experimental treatment at the time. There wasn't a lot written about it. Um, not a lot of data. Nobody knew exactly how it worked. I was desperate. So I try anything and there's doctor and he's like, eh, maybe it'll do this. Maybe it'll do that. And then there's uh, a nurse who like sticks a needle, like, all right, here we go. We're stepping out of the room and you just go through this voyage right so i did that for five days and it is while i was down there that i was like this would make a fucking outstanding thriller right you've got the themes of uh post-traumatic stress drama incorporate a good mystery i had some personal revelations that i was like man if i like this would be such a great story um so i kind of used it i was like i just needed to get it out of me and i i you know, I knew it wouldn't sell, but I was like, I have to do this like a passion project. So the premise of the book is a female combat veteran. Um, because I, it was so close to home for me that if I wrote it as a guy, it would be way too emotionally raw, too emotionally sensitive. It would be too triggering to me for lack of a better word. So I was like to get some distance to work with this thing creatively. I made it a woman and it fixed all my fucking issues. Um, so I made it a female combat vet who left the military to become an author, was having some success, not huge commercial success, but had made a made a living out of it. Um, it was dealing with, you know, their, all their author friends who are making money hand over fist. They were all like lawyers or accountants and, you know, they have social media expertise from their previous professions um and kind of the same situation i was in where i was like wow i'm like i'm like the black sheep here like i don't belong in this and i'm still trying to get like four hours of sleep a night with alcohol is like a big deal and then figuring out how to write figuring out how to manage kids um so it's emblematic of where i was at the time um and she instead of ketamine it's a um experimental drug called cetraphaline which like ketamine is a surgical anesthetic but like they don't know the data they don't know how it works but there are people having success and she goes in and has some revelations and um, some of the revelations make her think about like, the her former military platoon she was in that has had a string of suicides. And she starts realizing, like, some of these might not have been suicides and starts following this thread and following her revelations. And it kind of it's, it's largely a psychological thriller and. Um, with a heavy, heavy, like mystery subplot that kind of leads her to following this thread, confronting her own past and, um, and doing so under what we'll call, um, extraordinary psychic duress. And the other thing I'll throw out about that book is, um, I used a lot of horror, uh, techniques in it. I was kind of fascinated with horror genre and I don't have it in me to like write a pure horror book, but I will say it's a very dark psychological thriller, um, that, nobody has read out of my readership like not even all of i don't know how much of my readership has read it i don't think it's a lot however i received the most profound correspondence on that book um and i get pretty profound correspondence on my other two series as well from veterans ranging from vietnam to modern day from police victims of trauma or like you, you know childhood trauma first responders or like you've captured like post-traumatic stress like the essence we're truly alone i get these profound emails where it's just like a piece of fan mail and the last line is like your books have saved me more than you'll ever know i'm like got it like that's who i'm writing for like the people with struggles um but i get i've had people that have read everything i've ever written that have said that is my best book and then i've had people who've read everything you've ever, ever written that say that's my worst book Um, So I don't know to what extent it comes down to personally relating or expectation management. But for a book that hasn't sold anything, I get a lot of very um, polarizing responses. And the profound ones are like deeply profound, like people with serious post-traumatic stress are like. You nailed it like this book did so much for me. It was so cathartic to read this. So for what that's worth. Not a top seller, though,
0: I'll tell you. Yeah, but I think that's that's an important point that you said that book was in you and you had to write it. It wasn't about the money. It was about putting it out there. And it, uh, this is a phrase that I use a lot on this. You know, if, if if an episode helps one person, then, for example, this two-plus-hour conversation was worth it. You know, will it have Joe Rogan numbers? No, it won't. You know, not not today, at least. Maybe one day. But um, it's not about that. It's about, you know, putting it out there in the atmosphere because I do believe in, in the the crazy interactions of the universe. And if you've written that, then the right people are going to see it.
1: Yeah, I agree with you on that. I agree. Helping one person like makes it worthwhile a hundred percent. And then just strictly from the creative standpoint, um, even if that book never sold, like everything I've written since then was dependent on me writing that book. And I think that goes for like artists and creative types in general, right? When you have something that needs to get out, even if it doesn't do well, like that becomes the foundation for everything you write after that. There's certain things you just have to get out of your system and you have to do. And for me, I think part of that book was like at an intuitive level, I sensed like I needed to get out of what I was currently writing and deep dive into this topic of post traumatic stress, psychedelic therapy and, um, and produce that piece of art. And once I had it done, it was off my chest and I approached my series in progress that I'm still working on with more determination, more focus, more clarity, uh, and certainly more experience.
0: So one last question before we go to some closing questions. When we spoke last, you were self-publishing. I know you were in the indie genre. So what has been the the journey that you've been on as far as publishing because with my book i did amazon as well the self-publishing initially saw the exact thing that you told me about easy to publish very hard to promote um but then i hear i forget the term now but there's another one maybe you told me about it where you basically buy a bunch of books yourself it they kind of help publish and print it you buy a bunch and then you ship them to everyone and then obviously you have the traditional publishing so what has been your your journey through all those different options
1: So the reason I chose to go independent publishing, I didn't even seek out a publisher for my first book um, because I was kind of had that um, the immature artist mentality of like, I don't want anybody touching my work. This is my vision. It's mine. Like, I don't want anybody changing this to make it, you know, commercially malleable. Um, And now with the experience I have now, I can go back and state a hundred percent. Nobody would have touched that book. Nobody would have published that book. Um, It's, if you wanted to publish a case, like the perfect case study and everything you could possibly do to alienate readers um, to not establish a likable protagonist, to take your readers in the most uncomfortable dark moral quandaries um, and produce a book that violates every genre trope and structure that I didn't know existed. I don't, I don't read fiction. Um, like that would be the case study. Like it did everything wrong. And yet, I started a readership with it and I built a series off it and it gave me the foundation to like stay in the business. So the right people found that book. Um, but I also published it at a time when organic visibility on Amazon was not a punchline. Uh, shortly thereafter, actually, while I was publishing it, they introduced like their advertising platforms and then very quickly, like you can't look up a book you want on Amazon without scrolling past eight different ads. Um, so as an, as an independent author, I had to play the advertising game, which I only had marginal success with because much smarter authors than me treated me like a man cub being raised by like a pack of wolves. Like they were like, all right, man, like, look, here's what you got to do. And they all had experience in marketing, Excel spreadsheets, search engine optimization, like the successful independent authors, most of them of my acquaintance had a previous career that lent itself very well to it. Uh, I didn't learn any of that in the army, uh, but I had like the meat. I had the story. So I, I limped along like that. And then the ad just got more and complicated. I had to spend more and more time going through Excel spreadsheets and adjusting bids. Um, and fortunately, in that time, um, the main author who took me under his wing, his name is Andrew Watts, who's a successful thriller author. He's all over the bestsellers list at the time. And I re- he's a former Navy pilot. So I reached out to him like cold call and was like, hey, man, like, I've got two books out. My shit's not selling. My wife's saying I have to get a job like, what do I do? And he's like, yeah, your reviews are great. Like what, uh, what kind of advertising are you doing? Cause you're doing it wrong. You should have way better sales. And I was like, dude, I don't do anything. I just write books. Like, that's it. So he's like, holy shit. Like, stop what you're doing. Like get in, like watch these videos, start these kind of ads, start adjusting this, like ask me for feedback on your bids and you need to adjust it. So I did. And he's like, you need to change your cover. You need to do this. You need to cross to other authors. And at that point I was desperate much like with ketamine. So I was like, I will do whatever you tell me to. And I did everything he said. And then started selling and then started, you know, making decent income. Now of note that nothing in the story changed. So it, it comes like the commercial success or lack thereof is not an indicator of the work in my experience. It's there's so much marketing that goes into it to to make money. However, I did everything he said, sales took off, then I could, you know, write my next book and get the series off the ground. So that guy, Andrew Watts, um, in the next couple of years, he started a publishing company um, called Seven River Publishing. And he started it initially. It was just veterans and veteran spouses um, who were his initial employees. And he started this company, um, like bounce ideas off me and stuff. And he said I was kind of like his test bed. If he was like, change your cover to this, change your book description to this, start doing these type of ads. And I like I took off. And he was like, yeah, that that was kind of like the test bed that gave me the confidence like, oh, shit, I, I can do this. Like I can do this for other authors. So he started a company. And then for me, the ads were just getting so out of hand and I didn't want to spend time. With I just want to spend all my time creating. And one day I came to him. And by then he had at the time, I think like half a dozen authors. It's still a very small company at the time. And I was like, hey, man, um, like I want to get out of the indie game. How about I give you all my books and everything I ever write and you guys take care of all that. And I just write. So he did. And, um, I've been writing like they've been publishing my books ever since. Um, for me, the advantage of a publisher is one, I can't do the marketing stuff on my own. It was just getting so complex. i you see my social media. I didn't start doing social media until 2023 when my publisher has a team for that. Now, you know, um, that's like, get, get me this content. We're going to publish it on a schedule. Like get us this, we'll format it. We'll do the graphics. Um, So the advantage of a publisher, though, is I can just write and give them the manuscript. You know, I I do all the work back and forth. The editors um, get some drafts, the cover design, but they handle all of it, all the advertising and just send me a check. And that's exactly what I need. So my productivity, my output has taken off. Uh, The complexity of the plots I can write has taken off because I have so much more mental energy available. It's not like the clock's ticking to where I have to shut this down and then go mess with ads. Um, and sadly for anybody looking to get started, the last I heard when I was in, and I think it's only gotten worse since then, is it's getting so hard to make a living as an indie author if you don't have an already like established audience and a mastery over the complex you know, principles required to run Amazon ads, which are an ever-changing landscape of algorithms. And they make it harder and harder, and they take more and more money back from you in the form of their pound of flesh for advertising fees, you make less and less. Um, it's, it's really tough now. So for me, publisher has been um, a game changer and I'm looking to keep it that way. But I was also in the fortunate position where I had a readership. They don't dictate anything I write at all. They're basically like, cool, keep writing books. You want to start a new series? Cool. Like here's how we can position it to market it effectively. But they know the readers are there because i established that when I was an in indie. Um, for new authors trying to get in, I think it would. I think there is value. If you can't find a publisher initially, I think there's value to self-publishing, getting traction, getting initial reviews, working on your next book, writing a killer book one, and then writing in a series. That's what publishers are able to pick up now because you can point advertising at book one and make money. You can lose money advertising to book one and then make money on the read-through as people go through your series. That's what a publisher can work with. So I always advise new authors – like write in a series, like that's the only way to do it right now. And if you look at the big standalone authors like Dean Koontz and all this that write Stephen King that write standalones, um, they were successful at that way before um the landscape shifted to what it is
0: now beautiful well thank you i mean i was obviously taking notes myself because uh i do zero marketing of my book in fact i'm overly <laughs> humble where i'm like oh people don't want to hear about my book i won't put it on my social media will talk about it on the podcast so yeah probably the world's fucking worst marketing strategy ever but anyway i will i
1: might have you be I'm, I'm right there with you brother believe me <laughs>
0: All right. Well, then the first of the closing questions, we've talked about your books. Are there books written by someone else that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated.
1: Man, so I don't like reading fiction. It's a grueling experience for me. Um, I'm just too, I I see it how I would want to do it. And I overanalyze everything. It's not enjoyable at all. Um, I do like reading nonfiction. And one of the most beautifully written books that i read when i was a teenager and actually like i I read on my first deployment to afghanistan no two there was like this guy with a master's degree he was like a published astrophysicist that joined the army and he was like you got to check this book out um and i haven't had it recommended or even heard about it from anybody else since but uh the book is called my war gone by i missed it so by anthony lloyd and it's nonfiction. and in real life he tried to chase his family lineage of like, you know, war heroes and joined the British military. Um, didn't see combat finally went to Gulf war. It was anticlimactic. And then he found himself kind of dejected and stranded, which I think a lot of, um, you know, transitioning vets can certainly empathize with. So he just became a war correspondent and flew over to the Balkans and documented the war and the atrocities. Um, And would come back to England and alternated between a smack addiction. Like he was addicted to heroin in England and getting an assignment and flying back over and going completely clean and kind of feeding off the war. Um, And and then he would come off assignment, get back in heroin. So it is some of the most beautifully written prose, probably the most beautifully written prose I've ever read in his prose as it relates to both heroin use and The Horrors of Warfare are equally gobsmackingly beautiful, compelling, rich, vivid. Um, It's an absolutely unbelievable book, a dark read. Like if you get triggered, you don't want to read about war. Certainly stay away from that one. Uh, Other than that, I would recommend that is like that's my favorite nonfiction book. Hands down. No questions asked.
0: Well, that's amazing because that ties in so well with some of the things we talked about. You know, you have that, that void, and it might be an opiate, it might be the thrill of war, but you're still filling that void.
1: Yeah, yeah, funny how things circle back like that. But um, yeah, very timely to our conversation, that book
0: recommendation. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that. I haven't heard that before. I'm going to put it on my list to uh, read myself. So, what about uh, a movie and/or a documentary?
1: And Heat, Heat, 1995, Michael Mann. I probably said this the last time I went on your podcast. I have seen that movie probably triple digits by now. It doesn't age. It doesn't get old. Um, Some of the best storytelling that has come before or since. Masterfully done. Unbelievable casting and acting. Um, Realistic firearms usage, which is almost impossible to find in Hollywood. and if you if you watch any of the director's commentary or any of the behind the scenes stuff with Michael Mann, like he had those poor bastards out on the range for weeks, like eight hours a day with um, special forces instructors to give them one the realism and handling, but also just the attitude. Like there's a there's that early scene in the diner where. You know, Robert De Niro smashes, Wayne goes head into the table, you know, in like a crowded diner and like some big redneck looks over and like Tom Sizemore just tilts his head over and like has that like dead fisheye stare of like, I'll kill you. And the guy goes back to his business, Tom Sizemore, and he's like, Michael Mann points that out as like that moment, like that look is the attitude I want these guys to have because they know what they can do. And it's something that you can't just tell an actor to do. You can't have him practice. They have to have the skills to be able to do that. And I don't think many uh, many movies go to that level or have the, the time or capacity to go to that level. But uh, Michael Mann did, and he created a masterpiece, and I, I thank him for it.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, that, that mirrors um, Platoon. Bander Brothers. You know, Dale Die when he was putting some of those guys through Saving Private Ryan. They kept uh, Matt Damon away from the rest of the crew during most of the boot camp they did prior to filming, so they actually created that. You know, you're outside the tribe mentality wow. for that scene. So, oh, that's awesome. Beautiful. What about documentaries? Any of those that spring to mind?
1: Yes. Um, also timely to our conversation um, on the topic of psychedelics destigmatize just actual facts and data from past scientific studies, current scientific studies, real life vignettes um, on Netflix. There is a mini series called uh, how to change your mind uh, by Michael Pollan, who wrote a book by the same title. I, I have not read the book for being honest, but that uh, mini series gives a no bullshit deep dive. Look, it's very watchable. Um, and that kind of, that was one of the factors that pushed me into getting into that area myself for the better, as it turns out.
0: Brilliant. Yeah, I watched that myself. Each week is like a different drug, isn't it? Scythicin, ketamine, yep. et cetera. Yep. Beautiful. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Yeah, I can actually throw my... Uh, my buddy under the bus here. um, So my, my college roommate at West point, um, his name's Mike Rogers. I call him Mikey. He um, was in the Ranger regiment is a fire support officer. So he was basically the guy calling in the airstrikes, the mortars and everything and making sure everything landed with pinpoint precision, very complicated job, like telling the aircraft where to land, talking uh, all those pieces on the radio is like, combat situations are unfolding but um the key to how he did it the key to how the military does it is called the grg a gridded reference graphic um and it's got all the buildings numbered and there's these quadrants so it's a universal um map for anybody on the objective so when you're going to like complex urban terrain you can say like hey we're pushing the strong point from building 65 to 68 so you can adjust plans on the fly Uh, a simple tool but very very effective and when he got out he noticed like nobody was doing it for first responders. Um, so he created a company called CRG, started doing Z, uh, C, uh, GRGs, gridded reference graphics, in the private sector for first responders. Um, his business, um, he, he hired like his former platoon sergeant, a special or a Silver Star recipient uh, from Ranger Regiment, who's also got an incredible story. And, hire, and now he hires almost uh not exclusively. He hires a lot of college kids and everything on the map production side, but his sales team are almost exclusively former special operations guys that are transitioning. And he's like, some of these guys come without a purpose and they're like lost. And I he custom loose He's like, okay, where do you want to live? And I'm like this state, I'm like, okay, your job is to build a network there, start getting contracts and and getting connections. And it's resulted in now like entire states are passing legislation that every school in the state has to have these gridded reference graphics so the way it works is they they send their team and they map buildings all those out-of-date blueprints or blueprints might not even exist they create current uh gridded reference graphics interior and exterior for corporate facilities, schools um and what it allows them to do is like these first responders if you have emts firefighters and police three different organizations responding to um a mass shooting or any kind of natural uh, emergency they all have like an app on their smartphone where they're looking at the exact same picture since and and they can get real time reporting from people talking to 911 and when they're saying like oh yeah the shooter's like um go past the go past the old library down the hall take a right down the blue hall and it's and they're describing these things like they can convert that to like room 2B like that's where the shooter is and start managing a coordinated response. So he's had, um, tremendous, tremendous success building his company CRG. Um, and he's kind of at the forefront of that, that space for putting that technology, which special operators have been using overseas for two decades of warfare and bringing it to America, which nobody was doing before him somehow. Um, and he's he's had incredible success in like real world incidents you where first responders are using his uh, his company's technology for unified coordinated response uh, during actual
0: emergencies. Well, that sounds amazing. And you, you look at a lot of these, uh, these horrendous things that have happened in our schools, especially, you know, that's one of the problems. I even got an insight I wrote about in the book. Like I dropped my son off after a medical appointment one day and we had a code red, the first one that school had ever had. And I got locked in the school with my child. And saw how vulnerable they were, the complete lack of communication, um, at that moment between the teachers and, you know, the, the, the principal who I'm assuming was, was interacting with the outside. But yeah, I mean, I, I can think in my whole career, there was nothing that would do any sort of kind of 3D mapping of anything we were doing. We were just kind of relying on Google Maps and, you know, the, the MDT. So that sounds phenomenal. If you're able to make that connection, I'd love to get him on. Happy to. All right, well, then the last question before we uh, make sure everyone knows where to find you and where to find the books, what do you do to decompress these days?
1: Man, what a great question. So I know last time we talked, I remember you asking me like, oh, what do you do to decompress and relax? And I was like, alcohol, like, that's it. Um, to be honest with you, I still don't have a good answer because I've I've been off alcohol for about five months now. Um and I'm still kind of sifting through that landscape of how to, how to decompress without it. Um, and I haven't found a good answer. What helps me though is every morning I get up either with my alarm or more recently earlier than my alarm. Um, but I have like a little morning routine and I know that that keeps me in check because um, if if there's days I'm traveling or something uh, where I'm not able to do it, I just feel so much more mentally busy. I feel like I'm falling apart, like I'm not in control of the day. So I basically get up early. Um, and the first thing I do is meditate for just 10 minutes, sit, center of my breathing. Um, I got started on that with a Headspace app. And once I learned the methodology enough, there, um, like how he gets you into the meditation, the steps you go through before you focus on your breathing, and then how you come out of it. Once I got used to that, so that was second nature, I just do it now. It's just a timer. Um, so I meditate 10 minutes. Um, then I sit in my old shitty recliner and I read something for about 15 minutes. Um, usually it's like a self improvement type book, just so I'm always making progress on something in that space, something spiritual, self improvement, something to try to help me get my shit together. Um, and then I journal. And that takes maybe five minutes. I just got, might be five by eight or six by eight, like a little notebook. And I just write one page. It doesn't, sometimes it's nonsensical, random thoughts. Um, I, I picked that up from a book called The Artist's Way, where she's like, she recommends doing three pages. And I did it for a while, but she says, like, all those thoughts swimming around your head are like in the way of your creativity. So you basically write and get them out and clear your mind for the rest of your day. Um, so now I just do one page because, it forces me to be more concise and get important issues out. It takes less time, but just that, that aspect of journaling. And I, I mentioned it as well, because that always comes up. If you get into like microdosing circles, everybody's like you do your meditation, journaling, like exercise, sleep, like those in conjunction, if you have that dialed in, like microdose can be a really powerful amplifier. So I, I just journal for one page, just really help me get my thoughts out. It can be about something that happened the day before, or what I have coming up that day, whatever's bothering me. Um, really helps clear my mind. and then I just do like a little five minute like body weight workout, like pull ups, flutter kicks, push up push-ups, like ankles of the bar and the little pull- up bar in my office. just five minutes gets blood flowing, gets endorphins going, and then I sit down and write. So that little morning routine, meditation, reading, journaling, and just a quick few minute body weight workout um, really puts me in the right frame of mind for the rest of the day. And the more the more I've had experience around traveling without the more I realize. like, I think that's holding me together. And I think that's like the decompression process that's working for me. Now that alcohol is, uh, has been left behind.
0: I do almost an exact replica of what you do. Um, the, the meditation, the morning headspace, I still use headspace. I kind of still like Andy guiding me through cause I'm not very diligent yeah. with it. So it gets me there cause it tells <laughs> you, you know, yeah, you, you missed three days, you know, get back to it. Um, but, <laughs> uh so i'll do that i'll I'll fill the kettle i'll meditate and i'll make the coffee i'll sit out there i just bought another copy because i used the entire one last time of the five minute journal so i'm not journaling so much but i think that's a good idea i probably should write a page as well and get the the stressors off but between that and there's a productivity journal so i do the gratitude journal and then the productivity is basically listing out what do you want to get done which i think does kind of get a lot of that that bingo ball you know bouncing around your head And then I don't do the body weight thing, but I do the the foundation training, um, which is the kind of back health system. But I had a guy, uh, Dr. Chatterjee, who's a a very successful English um, doctor and podcaster and author. And he does what you're saying. When when he's boiling the the water for his coffee, he does just a simple five-minute calisthenics workout in his kitchen then pours his coffee and then gets about his day so it's interesting i think that's the one thing you can control when when you're stressed later it's hard to wind back down again but when you've yep. just woken up it's very hard to resist putting on headphones and just meditating because i like it because you close your eyes it's like you're going back to bed <laughs> but yep. then you know that in turn definitely has a ripple effect on my desire to drink at the end of the day
1: yeah, and I have to tell you one more thing because um, you were the one to recommend foundation training to me and I haven't had anybody else recommend it to me since. I wouldn't have even known about it, but I've recommended it to probably 100 people since then. Um, so that fixed like all my chronic pain after I got out of the military. Um, and then if I don't do it long enough, like chronic pains come back and I can just do a foundation workout and it all goes away. But uh, re- this year I kind of got back into running um, and I had I got an IT band injury, went to these like super specialized running physical therapists. Oh, they're the best for running. And, uh, they fixed the acute issue really quickly some dry needling. Um, uh, but then as I continued physical therapy with them, I developed like chronic bilateral knee pain, which, you know, they're used to dealing with like 5k road runners or marathon runners or whatever. And like not broke military guys. It's like partial MCL tear or whatever from uh military time that you never got operated on. Cause it wasn't that, wasn't that crippling. Um, but I just bilateral chronic knee pain, like hurt to go upset. And then eventually I couldn't run and they didn't know why. And I didn't know why and they're like, okay, cut the exercise in half to it every area of the day. And it still persisted. So I was like, fuck it. What would James Gearing do? And I quit <laughs> physical therapy and I just did foundation training, knee pain protocol every day for like a week and was perfect. Back to running, picked up right where I left off zero issues whatsoever and it didn't require me to drive down to an office and go through all their drills. So, yeah, foundation training, two very enthusiastic thumbs up.
0: Beautiful. That's so good to hear. I'm going to make a bracelet now, WWJD. What would James do? Because I'm sure the, <laughs> the Christian community would be drawn to that for some reason. Um, they would love it. <laughs> they love bracelets. They love They love James. He's in the Bible. Um, but, uh, no, but joking apart, it goes back to, again, that origin, that pee under the mattress and not the urine, The the vegetable um if you are dry needling all these things of course that makes a difference but you're dealing with an imbalance you're dealing with torque on a joint that's been created like we sat for two and a half hours talking to each other we're both going to get up and feel pretty tight and sore after this and so that's what i love about foundation is it understands like this is this is going to undo that imbalance it's going to put balance and strength and length back into your body So if you look at the CT of uh, Eric Goodman, the founder's back, it's still fucked. His discs are still looking terrible, but he's created that balance around the spinal column where it's not compressing, it's not pushing. So that's why I'm a staunch advocate, you know, and I tell people subways, airports, if I hear someone say back pain, excuse me, (laughs) but it, it does, it just works so well and you're addressing the actual underlying problem, not the symptom.
1: Yep. Yeah, I've had a ton of people that have reported back and been like, that was an absolute game changer for me. Like, I I know, but I'm so glad you told me about that because nobody else ever has.
0: Beautiful. All right, well, then the very last question, if people want to learn more about you online or social media and or find the books, where are the best places?
1: Uh, You can just go to, my website is jason-casper.com. You can just search Jason Casper on Amazon. all my social media handles are at Casper Author. That's Casper with a K. And if you're gonna read, please throw a dart, pick a series, but start with book one. Um, nothing. I, I readers are conditioned to have these read in any order formulaic installments. It's not what I do. Like you wouldn't jump into Breaking Bad at season three and try to figure it out. So it, nothing hurts my heart more than uh, other than the War on Drugs than like hearing from readers like yeah i picked up uh, you know books book 5 but i didn't really understand like what happened before i, mean, I yeah i know that's, that's how it works so everything builds on each other my series flow like long form television series um start with start with book 1 for the love of god and if you need a series to start with go with shadow strike enemies of my country if you're a military thriller reader and the series gets better as it goes has a new release about every 6 months and um It's been super rewarding to work on that one.
0: Beautiful. Well, Jason, I want to say thank you again. Um, It's crazy because these conversations, these relationships that we build through this podcast, we've never actually met face-to-face, but we remain friends since the very first time. But the journey that you've been through and and the the transparency and vulnerability that you brought to this conversation, and I've underlined this many, many times – We get people from your community that are saying the things and telling the stories that you've told today that debunks the men should be bodybuilders with no emotion bullshit that we were raised on. So I want to thank you so, so much for coming on yet again and uh, telling your story.
1: Yeah. and, And thanks for having this outlet to actually promote, uh, unity and healing modalities and erasing outdated stigmas that no longer serve us. Um, your social media is one of the few bastions in my day where I'm like, it's actually some fucking positivity and highlighting our shared humanity, which is refreshing. And I'll also say for you as a, as a human being, um, the more I've either had to interact with different influencers or talk to people who've interacted with other influencers, like everybody's social media is all oh they're great it's a positive brand they're these great people everybody shows how fucking wonderful they are um i like that you showcase vulnerability a few people do but sometimes i meet these influencers or talk to people who met him they're like he's just a great guy i've met some phenomenal human beings who are generally genuinely trying to help other people and uh make the world a better place and setting the example by trying to trying to work on themselves and then I meet some of them, and just like that guy's a dick. Like he is just in it for money, and this is all completely false pretenses. Um, so I, I'm super grateful for what you're doing, and thank you for letting me come on your your podcast yet again to um, to rant along with you because I I think you're doing you're doing phenomenal work, man. I, I love everything you're doing, and I wish there were a hundred James Gearings out there promoting the same message.
0: I really do. My wife would disagree Clone with you. yourself. <laughs> Clone
1: yourself. <laughs> Clone yourself, James. Our wives would all disagree with us. <laughs> That's not the point.